I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Returning to today's episode are Rove McManus talking Oscars and Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and then AJ Lamarck discussing the discovery of the lost city of Luxor in Egypt. My name is Justin Hamilton, and I'm fine you killed that bad guy with Cap Shield, here on Big Squid. Joining my friends and me today, it's a fun podcast where Rove and I discuss the Oscars and the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Spoiler alert, I think Rove enjoyed it a little bit more than me. And then a little overview of the Oscars within that as well. Then AJ Lamarck chats to me about his adventures down at the Melbourne Comedy Festival, where he is eerily prescient about a certain person's award-winning show, and then explains to me the significance of the lost city of Luxor being recently discovered in Egypt. A gentle reminder that this Sunday, the 2nd of May at 5pm, is our next live Big Squid podcast where we are discussing the topic, can we still enjoy it? I have added an extra guest as well. Comedian Tom Gleeson is now part of the lineup that includes Rove McManus, Alice Fraser, Richard Feidler, Georgia Mooney, AJ Lamarck, Angela Fouapierre and Alexi Toliopoulos. And don't forget, Ben Elwood. That's right. Big Ben's coming in as well, and he's coming in hot with a story that's going to blow your mind. It's a real scorcher. We are tackling a wide range of topics from the music of Morrissey to the works of Enid Blyton, from carry-on movies to Tom Cruise, from 1930s women authors to personal stories people tell you you're not allowed to share because it triggers them. The show is at 5pm and you can buy tickets online at giantdwarf.com.au. Apologies to everyone who have live streamed the show in the past. We were keen to do this, but look, to be completely honest, the last show that we did, there were some tech issues that 
stress me the fuck out right before we went live. And you know what? This is a tricky subject, so I don't want it to be distracted by anything heading into this. And don't get me wrong, some of the stories and the, some of the stuff my friends have ready to talk about is really funny, though. And and wait until you see Rove read a children's story while editing out the racism and violence towards kids as he goes along. It, it will be a fun night, but it is full of tricky subjects. So I wanted to be on top of it. I wanted to be across it. And so to take a bit of the stress out, we are just going to be live in the room. And we will record it and I will release it as a podcast down the track. But if you are in town, we would love you to come along and uh, love you to be a part of the audience. We would also just love you to come along because we'd like to do more of these in the future and get back to live streaming. So if you can make it, please don't wait until next time because in the current climate of live performance, everything needs to do well now to keep it rolling over to the next one or if it doesn't there might not be a next one so no pressure I I just know sometimes there's a difference between I'd love to go but I can't make it or I'd love to go ah we'll go next time and if you're ah we'll go next time come along this time like how many gold logie winners do you need on a show jeez (laughs) anyway please come along. We'd love to see you there. It's going to be a very fun show. Uh, A quick apology about the lack of podcasts for The Leftovers last week. Uh, To be honest, I'd completely forgotten how dense the first episode for season two was. And it took me twice as long to study, to do some online research, to write a script, and then record and produce. It was a mammoth task. And to get it out on time, I would have had to do the episode a disservice. And I didn't want to do that to you guys. I didn't want to do it to the episode. So I remembered that the timeline of these coming out is actually my decision. So, hey, give yourself some more breathing room. I'd rather get it right than get it right now. You know how I feel. That's how we approach Justice League. This is not a surprise, right? I'm very close to being 100% certain we will be back on track this Thursday. I'm just finishing it off for you now. Okay, let's bring in one of the people you can see this Sunday making his return to Big Squid. It is the very charming AJ Lamarck. He's back from Melbourne, back from the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. And how was it? Did you have a good time down there? I did. I've got to say, though, up top that I wasn't doing a solo show. I was actually, which was a very fun aspect of it, actually, because I got to go without the eyes of someone with invested interest. Yes. I wasn't doing a show. I didn't have to sell tickets. I didn't have to like worry about all of the logistics. I got to go down. I did a couple of um, spots on lineups. And then I just got to watch everybody else's show, have a drink afterwards, catch up, and navigate it somewhat like a general audience member. Yeah. that You know, I feel like that is actually the best way to experience a festival mm. is... is Specifically when you're thinking, maybe I want to be a part of this, Mm. go and see it. Go and feel it. Have an idea of what's happening. Watch from a distance the people who are being successful. Watch from a distance the people who are quite clearly having a nervous breakdown (laughs) and watch them really closely to see what they're doing so then you do not do that (laughs) when you go down. Uh, I think it's a really good way to get your head around Mm. it before you jump in. And what, what do you think you would do from here? Do you think you would 
do like a lineup show with some friends or would you go straight in with a solo show to Melbourne? Oh, that's a good question. I feel like I feel it's very what's very different what I found from Sydney in compar- in comparison to Melbourne was that Melbourne just seemed to be up for all comedy. Mm. Um, I think lineups are a bit harder to sell in Sydney, uh, especially in a festival context. Um, but Melbourne just seemed to be up for shows that they'd never heard of before. It was at 10.30 at night. It was yep. 5.30 in the afternoon. There was all these different times and things where in Sydney, as a city, I think we're a bit more spread out and we're less culturally engaged in that aspect. So yep. something has to align perfectly to go it has to be the right time after work but not too late that you uh, don't get home too late and then you get tired and you can't do work the next day yeah. and the weather has to be fine and the train transport has to be you know all of these things that have <laughs> yeah. to like line up before i feel like sydney siders get involved in melbourne were just they were there for it they would yeah they would turn up and so um having that kind of knowledge i feel like it would be quite fun to try a solo show first really to just you know give give an hour ago um put it together and know that people are keen for it yeah and you don't have to have this detailed analogy of what it's going to be and what they get out of it and here's the experience and here's the marketing and here's the story and here's the consumer journey and all of that stuff like sydney has a little bit um but just to be like cool people will turn up that i don't know they may not be family or friends they may never see me again but It'll be fun just to let it go of the wind. Yeah, definitely. It's the for me. My favourite festival is the Adelaide Fringe because mm. it's a small city. So then, once the fringe hits, everybody knows it's on. Yeah, everywhere. It's permeated through every aspect mm. of Adelaide culture for the five weeks that it's on and in the lead up. And Melbourne, people in Melbourne won't like hearing this because people in Melbourne are pretty certain that they're unique. But Melbourne is just Adelaide, but bigger in <laughs> many ways. And it's, but it's the same thing. You know, they've had decades of the comedy festival, and so there's a culture there, mm. and there's a sense of let's roll the dice on one or two acts every year and they might be people that will come and see you in your first year and then one day you'll be talking to them in Melbourne and someone will say, how do you guys know each other? And you'll suddenly realise, oh, they came to my first show 12 years ago. Yeah. And you're actually kind of friends and that kind of happens. But then Sydney is... it still makes me laugh. There are people who have lived here for a long time who have no idea that there's a mm. Sydney Comedy Festival. Yep, totally. It's a, and I suppose there's a myriad of reasons why. I'm not particularly sure. I think it's somewhat based on our transport system. We are very... Yeah. Um, and the way Sydney is not designed per se, but it ends up happening with our suburbs is they tend to be clustered into groups that will stay around the certain areas like i'm very hypocritical of this myself i live in redfern which is pretty close to the center or the central business district of sydney and i will float around this area maybe i'll venture out into the inner west maybe the eastern suburbs but this is where i float around ask me to go to an event in Parramatta, and i'll be like oh gosh oh 40 minutes on a train Parramatta. yeah like so many like suburbs away do i need a passport will that you know like <laughs> yeah no it's funny it's i remember when friends would leave adelaide because they'd say 
and this was back when I was younger and that's hard. Just Adelaide's too small and it makes me feel constricted and I feel claustrophobic and I'm going to Sydney and then eventually you'd find out that they moved to Newtown and it's like, where, where did you go while you're in Sydney? Yeah, Marrickville, Newtown. Yeah, that's about it. Yeah. And it was like, you ended up moving to a city where you stayed in two suburbs that were smaller than Adelaide. <laughs> you know? But the optics felt bigger. But the optics felt bigger. That's it, exactly. Uh, I'm, I'm like you. You know, I'm in Surrey Hills. I walk to the comedy store. I walk to Giant Dwarf, you know, Redfern, you know, yeah. Darlinghurst. I go to Central to the city, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. And then, you know, now and again, when you have to do a gig at the factory, you go, fuck, like that's all the way over in Marrickville. That's going to take me like... 35 minutes to catch a train and then <laughs> exactly. walk there. This is too much. Like, what's happening? And we're invested. And we're not yeah. even people to, like, you know, who are like, oh, let's see what's going on. I've not really done right. comedy. We're invested in it. And we're still like, oh, good God, God, that's a bit too much of an effort. <laughs> it's funny that you say that. So we were, so for everyone listening, when I just caught up with AJ, we were in the lift and we were just discussing how dark it is yeah. in Sydney. Like, I don't know what it is this year, but Daylight Savings finished and... Everything has just gotten super dark yep. really quickly. And it reminded me of uh, the Melbourne Comedy Festival. There was one year where I was performing a show at the Victoria Hotel at 9.45 hmm. and it was a ripper autumn. Like it was warm at night. I was still wearing T-shirts. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. You know, it was just a little bit lighter and it was probably the year that I sold the most tickets mm. that I'd ever sold. And it was a scorcher. And I was the following year given the same venue at the same time, but the weather was an arsehole and it was cold <laughs> and it was getting dark around 4.30, quarter oh. to five. And yeah. I remember at one point just thinking, fuck, I don't want to go in. And it's my show. <laughs> it's my show that I've worked on for six months. It's 5.30. My show's not on until 9.45. And my ticket sales dropped by like 25%. Yeah. Like it was pretty substantial. Yeah. And then on top of that, there was someone who was on at 7, a, uh, 7 p.m. who consistently went over. So oh, that meant my yeah. show would never – like you go over by five minutes in the seven o'clock show, that means the eight fifteen show goes over by ten. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it just becomes incremental. And so I never got on before ten PM and I just watched like twenty five percent of my sales dissipate oh. into this cold, dark ether. And it's fa it's fascinating. No matter how much you plan, you can just have something like that yeah. happen and it Shit's all over it. And yeah, yeah, especially to the point where you're like, oh, do I want to turn? I'm like, and I've committed. <laughs> yeah. I suppose I should. There'll be a few. Uh, like, <laughs> I've done all this work. I spent six months on this show. Yeah. And even I'm thinking, I, I am wearing a tracksuit at the moment. It would be it's quite so nice bizarre. to stay in that. Like, I, I find it so, like difficult to navigate but I'm from a country where the sun would set at 4.30 and I thought that was a natural thing for most right. of the year right um, so I'm from London um, and that was normal right to go to wake up and it was dark and then to at the time like leave high school and it was dark yeah 
And I was like, that was the norm to me. And so now I've, I've acclimatized living in Australia. I'm like, my goodness, it's 6.30 and it's dark. How do people live like this? And yeah. I was like, oh, I did it for a good 21 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For, the, for the majority of my life, I yeah. did that. And I was one of them. Yeah. I'm, I'd be quite happy to just keep daylight savings. I don't yeah. quite understand what the reasoning is. I'm sure if I looked into it or thought it through, I could. But it's like, there's this part of me that thinks, are the cows getting that upset? Is anyone really giving a shit? Why don't we just keep this? Yeah, all I know is it's something to do with farming. I think it was like the amount of daylight hours that a farmer could harvest crops in and sow seeds in um, meant that if there was more sunlight in the day, they could get more work done. And then when winter came, they didn't need to do as I'm, I could be riffing, but I feel like it was some harvest festival in the UK was drilled into us every year. Right. I'm not sure about in Australia, but come August, October, September time, whenever the harvest was, uh, clearly I paid attention. Um, <laughs> you know, you got a full day assembly. You yeah. had to bring in canned goods. You yeah. know, it was a very, you know, taut and fairly bred into us thing um, that now I have no recollection of. So clearly yeah. education, <laughs> right. forced education doesn't help. But um, yeah, odd. Education's a weird thing as well, isn't it? When you look back and you think about all the things that you were taught that were just a real kind of uh, emphasis. This is mm. going to be really important to you. And I reckon what you're saying now i've got a vague memory of that as well and like it's gone like it's it's dissipated into the into the wind a friend of mine he um this is a long time ago and he had trouble with uh you know being at school and concentrating he's one of those guys Mm. that uh you know he'd he'd see like a window and he'd pick up a rock and he'd throw it at the window (laughs) and then afterwards he'd think why did I do that? Like there was no. Oh yeah, the inhibition. Yeah, and lack he would, thereof. Yeah, and it would just be like, oh, I wonder what's going to happen. Bang, you know, <laughs> and uh, he, you know, like the teachers were pulling their hair out. Like he'd sit there going, "I've got to concentrate yeah. on this work, and I've got to not irritate my teacher." Like he felt empathy for what they were going through. Mm. He'd be like, "I've just got to do this," and then, you know. Three minutes later, the teacher would be saying, what are you doing with your pencils? And he'd be, you know, <laughs> snapping them off, throwing them up against something. And he just he, he just had a form of uh, ADHD, mm. which we recognise now. And he was really lucky that he just had... He had a teacher who just came in and said uh, to his mum, I think he's actually pretty smart, mm. but I just think there's this focus problem. And send him off to like one of those schools that is you know on paper you kind of poo poo a little bit oh mm. we're not going to eat food today we're just going to live on sunshine you know that kind of thing <laughs> but it was the perfect place for him to yeah. go because it allowed him to explore all these things and now he's really successful in his profession mm. and you, you kind of wonder when you look back on schooling in general is there like there's fundamentals that you need to be taught but yeah. And I say this with a lot of empathy towards teachers, but, um, you know, do we try to put too many kids on one level and make them all yeah. stay on that level, whether the, whether they're lagging behind or getting a bit too far ahead, you know? Yeah, that's the, 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 the kind of concept which I find most interesting as a part of that is the fact that age determines what level you're at in terms of education. And right. In terms of myself, I 
was much better at maths and sciences and languages right. for my age. But if you ask me what level I was for English, I was incredibly behind. And so, you know, you have this idea of you're in your age 11 to 12, you're in year 7, 12 to 13, you are right. in year 8, and you go through the school in that system. Right. Um, but I always find it interesting because it's like, well, you, you vary between what you're good at and when you're good at it. Um, you know, you numerous kids will be like, oh, I was a science kid, I was a maths kid, I was an art kid. Like, I never understood that one, I never did yes. this one. Yet, you always are just going up the ladder in progression. Like, you the same level for all things, always. Yeah. With everybody else. Yeah. Um, so, you could have been in grade seven. You could have been maybe a year nine maths exactly, student. Exactly, yeah. And a grade seven English student and a year eight history do you know what i mean yeah. like in terms of what you're capable of processing and taking on because yeah. like you say um you know i had adhd as a kid um well i still do now um you can't shake it off um <laughs> i tried it didn't work um got just got more shaky yeah um halfway through shaking it off you <laughs> forgot what you were doing and <laughs> i wonder why my neck hurt yeah um but <laughs> But uh, I I didn't discover it until way later in life, until right. after university. Right. Um, and one of the things I would get, it's like, oh, you're doing good stuff, but just look at things more. Take one more look. Always look back. Re- like, review what you've written. That doesn't make sense as a sentence. Like, right. You know, all of those things. And you kind of look back and you're like, oh, like, when you, you know, where someone like that teacher of your friend can put it into perspective and be like, this system isn't working for the kid. Yes. And it's not the kid. Yeah, it's the system that is like a magical gifted oh. person to have in your educational life. Like he often talks to me about how lucky he was to have someone who took an interest mm. and saw through the bullshit. Yeah, and he said like he was fucking annoying. Yeah, like, you know, as he said, he'd be sitting there going, "Okay, let's just not annoy the teacher. Let's not annoy the teacher." And then look around, and then there's, you know, he's been chewing up tissue paper and throwing it against the wall. Why are you doing that? I don't know. You know, yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing. But he was lucky, and there's, mm. you know, I think there's heaps of people out there that, you know, the, all, all the all the social issues that you get yeah. from it as well. Did you did you feel a sense of relief when you were diagnosed with a bit of ADHD? Oh, for sure, yeah. yeah. It, it explained so much um, about how I process things because, you know, you, you only have the perspective of yourself in terms yeah. of how you deal with problems. Um, I still, one of the things I still struggle with in general, which is not ADHD-based, is understanding that other people don't think or prioritise importance in the same way as myself. For example, you know, everybody knows someone who's a health freak. Um, and I say freak in the most loving way. Um, but, you know, my, my, my dad and my mum very into their health and fitness. is like right. much more of a priority in their lives than it is in my life, you know. And so when you get a little bit of a bubble burst in terms of like, okay, like the way you're doing things isn't invalid. Like it's a yeah. valid way of doing things. But, it's, you know, there are limitations in the system we live in. That means what... You, the way you process things isn't naturally suited for the way we live. Yeah. You know, in the same way that people who are taller or much taller than the average person or much smaller than the average person are not invalid as humans. It's just the system and the world in which we live is only designed for people within a certain height range. Yeah. So it's nothing to do with the bodies themselves. It's just the fact that they're putting in a position where they're automatically finding things difficult. You've got to duck yeah. before you go into 
a room where yeah. most people could just walk in and you know aeroplane seats are too big or too small and so oh, it's and nice it's yeah. and height is one of those things yes. where people do not have a fucking problem about banging on about it mm. like do you know what i mean yep. it's like height is it's that i've got a lot of friends because i played basketball as a kid who mm. were you know like one of my best friends is six foot ten yeah and i honestly can't think of many occasions where we've gone somewhere where someone hasn't got fuck crikey you yeah. know jesus you must be having trouble getting shoes like yeah whatever it is <laughs> but it is one of those things that they are constantly reminded yeah of how tall they are yeah and it essentially constantly reminded of how the world is not built for them for them yeah or inclusive of them and so when and, and and some things are more tangible, you know, if you if it's physical in terms of height, you can see the difference. So you, you know, you experience the difference directly and you're like, well, I'm tall and the the, the fridge is too low for me. You yeah. know, it's a, it's a very immediate thing. But when it comes to the way your brain works, you don't have that same level of objectivity. You can't right. say, oh, I just am unable to process this. Um, in a very concentrated, dedicated way for an hour, like the person next to me. Yeah. You were like, I'm doing it wrong, or I'm an idiot, or why can't I concentrate, or yeah. what's wrong with me in general. Yeah. It's not this objective way of being like, oh, my, you know, as a 13-year-old kid to sit there and go, oh, my brain just processes the world differently right. due to it. <laughs> like, right. It's not obvious. So when, you know, having someone be like, oh, no, you, you do have this and that's why things you've experienced feel like that in comparison to other people who can, for example, my sister, um, you know, would go out to the library as a kid and she could sit there for the hour and read a book quite pleasantly and I read 10 books, the first pages of each and made a pile, then sorted them by colours, you know, and did all right. of those things in the same hour. Yeah. <laughs> Got complained at by the librarian because I was running up and down, like right. all of those things and you're like, oh, okay, that does make sense. Yeah. Um, but it's also not, I think as well, losing that stigma of, you know, that often comes with those types of learning difficulties is that it's not just being lazy it's just having a different way of processing things yeah and if you did find a way to remedy that or you are able to be put in a situation where the system is set up to work with that then all of a sudden you're fine yes you're actually quite elite (laughs) all of a sudden yeah you were doing the best that you can in the system but in another system you can't yeah it's and that's and that's why i've you know like there should be more money in teaching and there should be Mm. like across the board, you know, we should be funneling all this money into education and education should be free and it should be, you know, built in a way that it can help uh, people who come at uh, uh, learning from different angles. And, you know, it's, it's fascinating that it's such a poorly funded area where Mm. education really helps Everybody, <laughs> like yeah. if you can help kids find their way, whether that person is going to grow up to be a doctor or that person is going to be a playwright or that person is going to be a mechanic, it doesn't matter what mm. the profession is. But if it's built in a way that everyone gets to excel, that yeah. means when they enter the workforce, it's just full of people who are fucking good at shit. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And the caliber of what can be done or what should be done. Right changes right um yeah it's, it's, it's super interesting i literally had a conversation with my father 
um, over coffee two or three days ago now during the weekend. And we were having this conversation and he said, oh, what, you know, what was one of the things you wish, you know, happened differently when you were growing up? Having a very deep conversation. Right. Um, in a public place. Uh, <laughs> Best place to have Best it. Best place to have it, yeah, exactly. Yeah, things can't get too emotional because someone's going to feel awkward and they'll stop the conversation. Exactly. <laughs> and um, one of the things I was acutely aware of was this exact problem. So I, I'm also dyslexic um, and I found that out at university, fortunately. So I was able to incorporate that into, um, you know, how I navigated university. Sorry. So hang on. You didn't find out you were dyslexic until uni yes. like so sorry uh, to interrupt but no, 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 I'm, I'm a bit it. fascinated by that so what mm. was happening before that um just a lot of mistakes right just a heap of mistakes you know like oh you need to review your work again you need to have a look at things again you're not you know you miss that that sentence doesn't make sense right. why did you just stop there like <laughs> right all of those things um which also feed into the adhd as well um and i did biomedical science as my degree and one of the good things about that, especially when you're starting out, is that all the answers are the same. Um, there's no, you know, you don't write an essay about, like, my interpretation of this antiquity right. era yeah. um, vase or whatever. It's like, no, if, if answer A is hydrogen, then my answer A needs to be hydrogen as well. That yeah. is how the science works. Yeah. Um, and so I was, uh, two of my close friends were also on my course, and we would write, you know, quizzes and essays and things back and we'd share notes with each other because we're like oh did you get that thing did that make sense blah, 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 blah. Um, and they'd be like reading my stuff like this just doesn't like why did you know they would do what my teachers did but um, at that level very early on they were like I think you're dyslexic and I right. was like oh alright <laughs> that's cool and then there was this um uh, development centre at my university back in Kent um, where you could go and get a free test. Right. And so it's like a very initial one to start off with um, and you do a computer test and you sit down you do the activities and then it gives you an indication of like um, where you kind of sit and if it's recommended to have an actual further thorough like uh, psychological test right um and so they were like yes go take the test <laughs> do the further one yeah and then I ended up doing the further one which includes like an iq test and it's like a, a three to four hour thing we're seeing in a room with psychologists and it's right everything from like here are like cubes arranged like blocks like arrange this into this pattern in the quickest time you know you're doing um they're, they're measuring intelligence versus your ability to understand letters and words at the same time and right. also um, dyspraxia which is the numeric aspect of uh, you know mental arithmetic and processing numbers um, so we did a very convoluted one and I got the biggest the best the best backhanded compliment I think I've ever received in life <laughs> right it's like you're very smart but you don't know how to use it um, right and I was like oh, okay um that's nice. I like to be very smart. I'll, I'll right. stick with that. But I don't know how to use it also implies that I'm not smart enough to know how to use it. Right. Um, and, and what she meant by that is your my writing speed is much slower than the average person. So essays tend to be, uh, like timed essays, for example, in exams, yeah. tend to be very difficult because I'm writing less per hour yes. than the average person. Right. Um, my ability to proofread 
is severely affected. So I read how I think that I wrote it, not right. what is on the page. Yeah. So I go, oh yeah, I wrote this essay about this thing and that's there. And then someone else looks at it. It's like, but there are five words missing. That is not the right word. That's yeah, misspelled. Right. This thing. It's this weird kind of thing where I'm like, oh, like, you're, t- you're getting told that what you're looking at is actually technically an hallucination in aspect. Like, you are seeing what you think you should be seeing and not what is really there because your mind is processing. And so there was all these um, elements. I was just like, oh, okay. And um, the university made accommodations for that. But in terms of what happened in my high school um, is that going from primary school to high school, I was um, in primary school put in very basic English classes so I was taken out of um, year six English and I was put into special classes where we would you know write two letter words starting with a right and this is when I'm 10 years old as a you know and other kids are like writing short stories and essays so uh, severely behind in terms of if you're looking at age compared to my peers and my primary school passed that on to my high school my high school was like look they're fine enough now to get by just leave it just leave it, put them in the bottom sets. Um, I'm not sure if you guys have set systems in Australia, but you kind of split a few classes up between the top achievers, the middle achievers, and the bottom achievers. Right. And you give them a dedicated teacher. And right. And they learn at different paces. Right. So I was put in a slower pace class, and they were quite content with not providing support for the dyslexia, but just saying, you're going to learn slower. We'll just put you in a slower class and on your merry way okay um and i remember i was and this is what i was talking about my father about and um i remember the age of 13 realizing that the classes i'm going to be put in now affect what um qualifications i can get next which affect which qualifications i do which are my equivalent of hses which affects my atar which affects my university choices which affects my job Right. And so uh, my year nine um, first day, we're going to English and I'm putting the bottom set and I rock up to the the top set class and I'm like, oh, hey, miss, there's been a problem with the registers. Like you actually have to add me manually to your register. And so I lied to get into the top class and I lied to my bottom set class and I said, oh, there's been an error. You have to remove me from your register. Um, Miss blah, blah, blah is putting me on hers. And so I lied to get into the top set for all my classes because at the age of 13, I knew the the impact and the consequences of all those decisions that were yeah. made by the high school on my behalf. And in that conversation with my dad, I was like, this is one of the, you know, the kind of saddest aspects of my childhood is that the fact that 13, I knew that someone didn't want me to succeed or didn't support me so i'd have to hustle myself right if i wanted a future yeah if i wanted to get the best teacher and the best class and the best education i had to kind of force myself in it because no one was going to support me in that process so it was this very weird moment of being like my god that's that's a smart 13 year old yeah but also that's unfortunately a smart 13 year old that had to have that yeah problem to deal with and it was just fortunate that i i had the cognitive ability to lie right to put myself in and then i ended up getting relatively good grades and then at university i got like um you know i got a first class honors and so like my brain just took a bit of time to catch up yeah and it wasn't relative to the age i was but it was relative to my brain's own 
development across those years so by the time i got to university my brain was like we can do this yeah yeah in high school it was like i can't do this the same to my peers and in primary school it was like i definitely can't do this right to the same age. so it was a very interesting growth in that arena it's um, it's a pretty impressive uh story about 13 year old you though like hmm. knowing something even if you weren't able to articulate it, you knew something wasn't quite right mm. and you made it right. Yeah. That's that's really impressive. Uh, mm. Like, I understand the, you know, there is a sadness to the fact that other people didn't realise it. Yeah. But the positive part of it, <laughs> yeah. which is the really, <laughs> but I think that part is really positive, yeah. is that you sorted it out. Yeah. So it should be something that you should always, you know, keep in your back pocket when you're thinking, ah, this is a bit, you know what? When I was 13, (laughs) I I fucking dominated that decision. I owned it. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's what I was doing with my dad. So it was like, oh, it's like, I wish I didn't have to do that. Yes. I wish I didn't have to be the person who looked after me, but also I'm glad it taught me the skills to look after me. Uh, (laughs) Absolutely. So, you know, it's, it's, it's one of these weird things where it's like, you know, if I didn't do that, would I have been pushing myself always yeah. to do the best I could for myself feeling like no one else was going to help me yeah and getting those skills to then you know if I get placed anywhere along as you know an English-speaking country or a Spanish-speaking country like I can get by yes I can start a life I can get a job I can do all of those things would have that would that have happened otherwise who knows you know like who knows that's parallel universes for you that's someone else that's a different aj's problem <laughs> yeah sorry sorry other aj <laughs> but it's uh but it's a it's a great uh pivot mm. you know and it's it's amazing how there's these little aspects in our dna or our history where mm. you can kind of look back and see a moment and go oh that's that's actually quite a defining moment yeah. even though at the time it just feels like something you have to do. Yeah. I don't remember. Yeah, it wasn't this pivotal, like, you know, this, this TV or a very particularly American style of TV show where just like everything slows down and everything, right. spe- you slow down, the world speeds up around you and you have an epiphany and this right. is like the full, you know, understanding of the world and where you sit. It was just like, oh, okay, now I'm going to do this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. I just got to get on with it. Yeah. I got to cool. do this. Oh, miss, it's the wrong register. You got to add me. All right, let's begin. You know, yeah. pen out, pad out. Let's go. Uh-huh. <laughs> You know, so I was thinking recently, uh, I'm quite comfortable moving on from friendships, not in a nasty way, but just as a hint. (laughs) And I'm glad you're here now. And uh, you've seen through my ruse, but it's it's one of those things where if a friendship kind of comes to Hmm. a point where you think, ah, this isn't working anymore, I'm comfortable not, not... like causing a scene, yeah. But I'm I'm comfortable with. Well, I'll just go over here now, yeah. And it doesn't have to be anything. And I mm. still have a lot of affection for that friend, yeah. But I just know it's not working anymore. Yeah. Anyway, the reason I bring that up is I reckon I went from a primary school where I'd gone from, you know, the kindergarten, the junior primary to the primary school, and then ninety. Eight percent of my classmates went to one high school, and I went to another high school where there was only two other people from my primary school that I knew. Mm. And I feel like, in hindsight, that taught me how to move on. Yeah, <laughs> it's one of those things where, at the time, didn't realise it. It was just, well, I'm at a new school. Yeah, I've got to meet new people. I've yeah. got to 
This is where I'm at now. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> I have to redefine myself again. Yeah. I, I don't have any backstory or anything. This is what it is. Mm. And I feel like in hindsight, moving, uh, going to that different high school was a really pivotal moment in yeah. making me who I am today. And mm. it's funny to, so when you say, you know, I just did this and this will resonate for you yeah. all the way through your life. which And that's why I think it's a really good story and a yeah. really positive story. Yeah, totally. And it's, it's, and it's the moments that, you know, they're not big and shiny. They're not these, oh. you know, world-changing, world-changing. And, and sometimes they're made on your behalf. Right. You know, in the, in the case of my, you know, in the case of your one, you, I presume your parents put you in yeah. a different school it wasn't you were like I want to go to this one specifically because I need to learn how to be an independent and yeah. make new friends in a new social setting it was something that you didn't even really have much control over that yeah. seems like quite a normal thing it wasn't like there was a massive earthquake and your family had to flee from the town right. it was they just put you in high school B rather than high school A yeah she very thought, normal thing to do she uh-huh. thought B was better yeah you know what the best thing is I lived opposite high school A <laughs> I used to walk through high school A to catch the bus to go to high school B. <laughs> was it just was it uh, more a prestigious school or anything like that? Or? I think uh, it was just better academically. Yeah. I wonder if mum maybe thought that it wasn't a positive thing to live opposite the high school that you went to. Maybe. I, do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like but I just, I just, it takes away some of your privacy. Yeah. Because everyone on your street who, you know... Would probably go there too. Yeah, but the, also all your neighbours are seeing you or, like, constantly, mm. you know, I don't know. But the other school was definitely better academically. But, it's, uh, but yeah, you're right. It's funny, these things that mould you, often it's not until much later that you look back and you go, oh, yeah. Yeah, if it wasn't that. All, like, these, all these big moments, they dissipate. Yeah. You know? I think it's a healthy way, going back to what you are saying about friendships as well, it's... Um, I think we, you know, we like, again, like we were talking about last time in terms of a bit about Egyptian culture as well. We tend to live in a very definitive society yeah, where things are on or off. They are, you know, up or down. They are left or right. They are never in the middle because the middle is seen as not a decision or... Right. And, and you know, so when you're able to, you know, a friendship is just run its course, but not necessarily needing to end... Like, the train track is still there. There's just not yeah. many trains on it. Right. Doesn't mean the train track is invalid. Yeah. Uh, still train mean, tracks. Doesn't mean that, like, in 20 years' time, you can't put a train on it. Yeah, you might need right. some maintenance, but uh, right. the train will run on the track. Yeah. Um, but I think everyone's going, oh, well, if you don't talk to him for this amount of time, that's it. You're, you're done. You have to then have this awkward... I have many friends, actually, from the UK. Humble brag. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, but we message and i can't do the whole long message to one person how's your family how's your dog how's your kids how your cat you know if i was going to st ives like all of that type of thing um but you know if they you know when a few of them came out here pre-covid or vice versa would catch up and just continue yes it wouldn't be like oh hello lovely to meet you yes aj it's just like oh did you see you know like we just didn't have to reintroduce we just carried on right um and i think it's just a nicer way to be i don't feel this um pressure to always be talking to someone otherwise they're not valued and and if something does come up where they need me i I want them to feel like they can just be like hello right not to be like i've lost that connection forever right 
I feel the same way as well. Mm. It's uh, it is one of those things where it, one of the reasons I was curious to know uh, how your Melbourne experience mm. was uh, was because I just was wrapped not to be in Melbourne. Mm. I was yeah. really happy about it, and uh, th- there were many reasons to that, ranging from just hearing. You know, talking to some friends down there and they were talking about stuff that, you know, there's always talk about who gets the gala and who gets this and who got that. And even when you don't buy into it, when you're down there amongst it, you have those conversations. Mm. I remember one year just getting like a bad review from the Herald Sun, like, who gives a shit? And got a bad review, whatever. And everyone just kept bringing it up with me. And so then it became a thing. Yeah. And so it was like, and and I think it was, there was a year that there were particularly harsh reviews from the Herald Sun. Mm. And so people get, oh yeah, it's bullshit that you got that bad review. I hadn't even read it. Still haven't read it to this day. But it was like, But you weren't aware of it because everyone kept on telling you. (laughs) Right. And so then you have this shit experience over three and a half weeks with a show that I was perfectly happy with. And I'm not saying it didn't have flaws or whatever or was perfect or anything, but it was working in the room, which is all it should be. Yeah. People have paid. They're laughing. You've done your job. Yep. But because everyone kept bringing it up And so it was funny I was talking to someone who missed out on the gala And they were really upset about it And it brought up these weird kind of physical reactions Mm. Where I was like, oh, I just, I don't care Like, I don't care because I'm, this is Mm. one of the reasons I'm not there So I don't have to have these conversations And it feels really good Yep And it's funny watching, especially, you know, like people my age who are in their 40s or early 50s who have been doing the festival for years still having those conversations and I think they're personally I think they're really dangerous I think they Mm. stifle you because you should be talking about fucking interesting things not worried that you didn't get the gala or what politics is being played or oh that person's been doing it for four years and now they're in the gala I've been doing this for blah 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 and you go who gives a fuck but I understand Mm. When you're in it, yeah, how that shit can just end up in your head. Yeah, and it's uh, it's funny you say that because I was around conversations the same thing, and then right. I started being like, "Why was I? Why wasn't I invited?" And I was right. like, "Because nobody knows who I am. Like, right. I wasn't in the festival. I've been doing it two years, including COVID. Like, I'm not." Anywhere near there, right? But yet I was feeling this angst, and I was like, "I'm not. I don't even have a show." Like, yes. I came down here for a little holiday, and all of a sudden, I'm a little bit spooked. Not not dramatically, not enough to tar my experience of the uh, my week down there. But I was like, "Oh, you no. know, you feel it, and you're like, there's a level of anxiousness because it is every festival is full of lots of people who have poured their hearts and souls mm. into their shows." And some are going to succeed and some aren't. And your definition of success is also going to be different within that. There will be some people who will sell thousands upon thousands upon thousands of tickets who will walk away from it thinking that they had a bad festival. And there will be people who sell tens of tickets who will walk away going, that is the best experience of my life. And nothing, everyone's... (laughs) 
and you're you know, so right. You know, and comedians always, you know, like I'd hear from partners, you know, ah, oh, such and such, it's such a pain during the festival, and it's like. I understand why partners get fucking annoyed because comedians <laughs> are annoying, but it's also every night you're by yourself yep. having these experiences and then you're all standing around and everyone's kind of performing and talking over each other and that's because you're so full of energy and full of these yep. experiences and then that's not even taking into account the people who work behind the scenes like the managers or the ticket mm. admin people and, you yep. know, oh, man, I just... I honestly like I love creating shows. Yeah. And I love performing. But I just reckon festivals can go fuck themselves. <laughs> like I'm just at that point in my life where it's I would almost rather work really hard on a show, perform it three times somewhere that I just know, right, this is controlled, we're not Yeah. We're not comparing it to anyone else. We're just gonna make this thing yep. and do it. And then we've done it. Mm. And this is great. Sometimes I'm envious of the theatre world because obviously yes. the theatre world does have awards and it does have a level of prestige where your show is being um, what actor is getting what role on what stage. Obviously, it's it's not a perfect bubble. And I say there's working in a theatre. Um, but there is this element of, well, if that one don't want me, I'll go over here. Um, right. And then, you know, your show, your, your show gets in the emerging theatre and people come check it out and they'll like it and they won't and it might tour for a little bit, it might not. Yeah. But there seems to be a less definitive process of or definitive structure of what success is. The, the, right. the, um, the range in which success is defined in the theatre world, I think, is just... A little bit more wider. Yeah. There's less, you know, there's no gala for the theatres. Right. It's, it's TV. If you're on TV, great. And if you're auditioning, you know, you just keep auditioning more yeah. for things. Yeah. Um, and in one day, maybe. One day, maybe not. But um, just it's just slightly bigger. You know, you look at the pond over there. You're like, oh, look at that. They get funding and grant. And, right. You know, grants. And um, they have charities set up to help emerging artist you know oh my god what a lovely look how well they're doing (laughs) and the actors are going we've got nothing and i'm like oh gosh hello (laughs) come be a comedian um (laughs) i kind of love the idea of a theater gala though you know kate blanchett hosting it as lady (laughs) macbeth coming back you know at intermittent moments to do other famous roles that she's performed etc everyone just does a series of monologues and it has to be serious it can't be funny Uh, yeah and then someone gets angry because someone's monologue went seven minutes instead of the allotted four (laughs) i love it now now so i said to you i'm not going to keep you for long because i had something that i wanted to ask you about and then we have fucking banged on like a couple of dudes who were catching up but um so I thought of you immediately with, uh, in Egypt, archaeologists mm. finding a new city. By the way, I had so much great feedback on your last appearance oh. on the podcast and uh, people were really into uh, all the Egyptian stuff as well. And I was like, oh, well, I'm curious to know what you thought of this archaeolo- archaeological discovery because it, like, to find a city. Yeah. Like, that's... That's one of those things that still holds a level of romanticism mm. for me as like when you were a kid and yeah. you're like, what do you mean you found a city? And so I was wondering, what can you tell us about what they've discovered? 
Yeah. Um, well, firstly, thank you. Um, it's nice to be like, you know, fasting out my Egyptology nerdy side. Yeah. People going, woo! Um, <laughs> You're at the right podcast. <laughs> yeah, usually my, my partner Luke is like, take the books off the bookshelf. You don't need any more of the books. Read the <laughs> book you got first before you buy the second one. And I'm like, but I read them at the same time. And Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is a super fascinating um, discovery. And like you say, it's a city and and i presume a lot of people would imagine it's in the middle of nowhere in egypt that they probably found it in the middle of the the sahara that touches egypt or somewhere where there shouldn't be a city but it was actually found near luxor which is a very big city like it wasn't hiding uh, except through um a few layers of sand but it was right next door it's kind of the equivalent of you know, being in Sydney CBD, and they'd be like, "We've just discovered a new city of North Sydney." Right? Like, <laughs> you know, it's like it was. You could see it from the city, but it was obviously hidden by sand and yeah. dirt and stuff. Um, and so, it's a fascinating. It's a uh, it's a very fascinating find for Egypt in. Uh, contemporary terms as well so egypt i'm not sure if you know much about the country but uh, a lot of its um economy is based on international tourism right um and so through that is a you know a great precedent on egyptology and ancient history they spent a unspeakable amount i would I, I couldn't find it i was trying to see if um there was a fact on it but i would reckon it was probably one of the world's most spent uh, one of the countries in the world that spend the most on archaeology right. that's, that's what i would guess um just for the sheer amount that they conduct and it's a very competitive industry you know if you do get a grant you get some money, you, you take a hunch, you're like, this is where I think it is, I've read these texts, I've read these things, I think this thing might be here. You get some money, if the money runs out and you don't find it, it's done. Right. You move on. But there's a lot of money that's kind of churned out in the uh, to build up um, the, the knowledge around um, ancient Egypt. And in turn, that helps fuel the economy because tourism comes in. They come in with foreign currencies, which are uh, often, you know, quite more valuable in comparison. And so they're bringing a lot of money and um, things like COVID, for example, is just annihilated. Right. Um, That pretty much that entire sector. Um, And so Egypt has kind of begun a whole wave of new... um, projects to kind of refuel that part of the economy now coming out of covid and this site was a project that actually started in september 2020 right so if you're you know you're looking at covid terms in a very big country such as egypt in comparison to australia australia was doing fine in september 2020 we were recovering yeah you know you know i think melbourne was just out of their second wave right um so like relatively australia was doing fine egypt um was you know is still kind of in the grips much as uh as much as the rest of the world and so to start a big project like this in september 20 is kind of like we need to get this going now um and then to discover a city of this size is a a massive important factor um not just for egyptology as a field but for the economy and egypt as a country and it's and it's movement towards kind of restabilizing its own economy um so from that aspect alone it's a very interesting and, and fascinating piece because it's like this is something where we can get people in yeah. get people fascinated and learn more about our own history as egyptians um the city itself is is um 
quite influential because it's um, it's called Aten, which if some of you listened to last uh, podcast where I was talking about Akhenaten and the whole movement towards um, the single deity religion, yep. who was Aten, um, who was the sun god. Um, this city was the the namesake, so and it was uh, founded by Akhenaten's father. So Tutankhamun was the son. Akhenaten was the the heathen father, and yep. his father was the one who founded this city. Um, and isn't the idea <clears throat> that he moved it to get it away from uh, the the religious influence uh, mm. that the previous, you know, the the way he was trying to change the way they would worship? Didn't yep. they move? The idea was they moved the city to this area to move it from the places of power where the old ways still had the influence. Yeah, so it was a bit like that. So it was actually Akhenaten who moved away from this city. Oh, right. So he was the one who moved away uh, and created the city of Amanra, which was in the desert. Right. So kind of like a a Los Angeles type thing. It was like, no one should be living here technically. There is no... We're in a desert. Um, This is not designed for life. uh, You know, Egypt is is a country built by the Nile. Yes. Um, and so to move a city into the desert is a very bizarre thing to do. Um, but it was actually his father who helped um, kind of bring the city into its biggest part. So this was the city that Akhenaten was moving away from. Right. But it's quite interesting that it was called Aten because Aten as a god is this very interesting figure in, in history, um, mainly because of uh, Akhenaten's want to celebrate this god as the only god and a god that we can understand in more modern terms through religions like christianity you know it's a god that is the creator and is life there is no other god above this god or equal to this god and we are all children of that god um and Aten was kind of in its early days associated with the sun god ra yeah and they were kind of combined and if you think of egyptian gods they are mainly um, kind of animal, high human hybrids that represent different aspects of Australia, uh, Australian, uh, Egyptian life. Yeah. Um, you know, from Bast, you've got your cat head and yep. Isis. He's got these wings and occasionally is a bird and all of these um, kind of wonderful creations about things that Egyptians saw around them personified with who they were to represent deities and gods and the people that created the world. Um, and so Aten was an, as- an uh, what was known as an aspect of Ra, so like a particular part of him. Right. Um, and across the journey um, from Amenhotep III, who's Akhenaten's father, um, all the way to the, the heathen religion in Amanra, which was the city that everybody moved away from, Aten gets its own um, entity formed around it itself. Right. It's formed as the sun. It's it's not got a body, it's not got a human face, it's not got an animal face, it's just the sun and its rays. Right. Which was a very interesting move away from this idea of personification of an animal to represent the beliefs into its own individual symbolism. Right. Um, and then that symbolism under Akhenaten then turned to, we can't actually illustrate it at all. We're not right. allowed to talk about it in its literal terms. It is above creation. We cannot imitate its form we cannot imitate its name because it is above us so there was this period as well after that where they started to scratch out all the names and just write it phonetically so it didn't get accreditations because mere humans would not know the omniscient of the atom like who are we to to talk about it to write about it to draw it um and so the idea of atom as a symbol and as a god 
has this very interesting narrative arc. And if you look at Atten, the city that was undisco- uh, discovered, the fact that it's named after Atten is an important um, aspect of that journey because it's the first time that they've de- dedicated a place not to Ra. It wasn't the city of Ra. It was yeah. the city of Atten, which is just a small aspect of Ra, which yeah. then turns into a bigger thing. So you can kind of see when you overlay Akhenaten's journey of being like, all of these gods are wrong. This is the one true god. You can kind of see how he's already in an area where that led to his beliefs being cemented in this monotheistic religion. Right. It's such a fascinating concept <laughs> because you also think... I, I When I read things like this or I hear someone talking about stuff, there's always this first thing that I go to, which is... What was the common person mm. at the time discussing yeah. while they were recording their podcast? Do you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, with, or, you know, the Atten tablet, as it was called. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, didn't come out weekly back then. That was a lot of work. But, the, but it's, it's fascinating because it's easy to kind of just read that and then they go, oh, yeah, well, they thought this and then, mm. then they thought that. And, but it's you know, it's a substantial amount of time and mm. there's every day. And I, I yeah. wonder what the conversations were amongst uh, the everyday people who mm. were being told, this is what you used to believe, but now you're going to be believing this. Yeah. And how do you transition people into that way of thinking? Mm. And I'm guessing that this city might give us a bit of an insight into what was going on, yeah. potentially. Um, one of the, the main things that is so fascinating about this find and this dig of what they found so far, they've only undis- uh, discovered a few districts of this city. Mm. Um, but what they've discovered about those already gives a very um, detailed analysis of what life was kind of like. Um, so one of the areas, it's, it's, it's this giant kind of bakery kitchen area. Um, and the sheer size of it, kind of lends itself to okay so this is a very big industrial complex where things are controlled in a very administration way so therefore right. there this must be part of something which is quite highly regimented within the city as opposed to finding a small kitchen and you could be like well that's a house that's a little restaurant it's, right what is this thing but um the the sheer amount of um industry going on in that bakery district alone goes okay well there this is a part of a this is a factory essentially yeah this is producing something on a mass scale what is the mass and why was it here and what was it doing right what was the order behind it so just discovering the space in which this bakery was already tells you something indicative about how the city was functioning and then you look at um the 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 kind of the the jar fragments and the pieces of steeler and the the hieroglyphs that are kind of engraved on certain aspects and they and everything gives you a little bit more of an insight about what was actually going on here right um you know there's some sections which um uh, so this is the 18th dynasty um is when Aten was um the city was kind of at its highest peak um and it's kind of one of the things that define it is this very zigzag architecture it's very odd and in terms of egyptian um building but this era just really loved a zigzag wall right um so when they found it they were like okay 18th industry we know where we're at um and you know one of the aspects shows it going around a very large kind of residential area with only one entrance and one exit um and part of that 
kind of makes the archaeologists believe, well, this is a highly secure area. Right. Because, you know, if it was a city, you would have streets and alleyways and paths and this door and that door and that window. But if, if there's only one entrance and exit, you would presume there was a reason why. Yeah. Um, so everything inside needed to be controlled or everything outside needed to be protected. Right. And so you're starting to piece together just from just rubble essentially you know like you were saying how these people lived and what the area was for and therefore you can start to infer things about how people navigated that life right how did they lose it that's what i'm curious about Mm. do we know how like how do you lose such a big place was it did did they like you know they they moved to that area did they move out was there like I, I have no mm. idea and yeah. I'm curious about that I'm not for Aten I'm not particularly sure like I say Akhenaten um, wanted to create his own religion so he spent a few years there right. as, as pharaoh um, and then was like no this is wrong we are celebrating Aten as the only god and and then a few years further from that decided to move everybody to his own city in the desert um, and create this whole new city so I think part of that must be the reason why the city probably left was quite dramatically left because he forced a lot of people to leave yeah maybe not the the farmers i suppose and certain people of the kind of lower classes but the upper class and the echelons and temples uh staff and the priests and and the administrators everybody who was doing an official function for um the the pharaoh essentially would have been forced to leave and so if you're taking the highest and richest members of society from a city and plonking them somewhere else in this very trickle-down economy type world in which they were living you know their servants would have gone with them if the servants went that means the food sellers on the street weren't selling food to anyone because there was no one to sell food to to buy it on behalf of the and so you know a lot of that would have meant that the city would have been essentially quite empty right um you know you're going from a city of a population of however many people lived here and we still don't know um to hardly anyone right you know if you imagine just your your own neighborhood wherever you are in the world um going from how many people are in it now to maybe like one percent of them you the city would feel like it was already deserted yeah um and you know going backwards then to reassert a new city um and Tutankhamun did live in the city for a while. Yep. Um, but it's one of those things where, you know, you, can you rekindle a whole new city? A lot of pharaohs would take it upon themselves to create a new capital. Right. Um, it's, you know, it happened in most countries' history that they changed the capital based on politics or based on the leaders want to reassert themselves as the one true leader of that society and so there's many kind of factors um but i think that akhenaten literally moving most of the population out of it eventually led to its downfall even though tutankhamun did move back in for a while right and his successor king i um did frequent that city for a bit yep um i think the the ongoing damage of having a, a derelict city for at least a few years would have really impacted yeah. how people viewed it, its necessity and the stability of living there. Right. It'd just be a bummer, <laughs> you know, but it's also, but you, you see it, um, you see it in modern times in, you know, 
Melbourne and, mm. and Sydney where they'll revamp a whole place. This is the new place to move. This is where all yeah. the businesses are going to be thriving. You're going to love it. And then you have to go into that area at some point and... Google Maps can't find it because no one ever fucking goes there. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and it feels so artificial. And it feels really artificial and yeah. there's like stacks of uh, like apartment buildings with facades that are empty yeah. at the bottom where this is where all these businesses are going to be. And somehow there's still three... 7-Elevens thriving, but apart from that, <laughs> one art place that someone's using as a tax write-off, and that's about it that's kind it. of thing. Yeah, it's fascinating, and I was uh, I found that really exciting when mm. that uh, turned up. There's a, one one thing I I don't know if this is correct, and it was really hard to look up. And uh, after we chatted last time, and every time I type things into search engines, I kept getting not quite what I was looking for, but is there a, a, a like a through line between Ra as sun god to the story of Apollo, which then kind of seems mm. like it gets into the story of Jesus, which I'm sure some people might think is oh, it's definitely but it feels like there's this through line. Oh, with the the parallels between um, elements of ancient Egyptian religion and Christianity are sometimes verbatim. Yeah. Uh, sometimes they are literally lifted, and if you translate them, they are the same text. Right. Um, I think, yeah, you're probably venturing into, um, like, specific articles by one scholar, so Google Google may struggle. But um, <laughs> Everything but that came up was, a lo- to be honest, every yeah. time I'd look it up, there'd be these things that would be, like, uh, very pro- uh, the story of Jesus and these are what heretics are thinking yes. and I'd be like look I'm not trying to take sides here I just want to I just want to see him. I just want to see the parallels um, yeah maybe next time I'll, I'll have a investigate myself and I can try and narratively sling it together yeah. um, in a way that an academic paper might not give us much simpler pizzazz you know what I mean when they yeah. go to all of the <laughs> correct terms for everything and you're like oh my god I'm on the second sentence and I'm lost. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I've got all these pages open while I'm trying to decipher what you just said in that first paragraph. Gosh, this how is a I disaster. feel like when I go to fancy restaurants and I'm like, oh, what is that word? And I Google it and then I ask oh. the next word and I'm like, oh, it's a hamburger. Right. It's a hamburger. <laughs> but of course you can't describe it as a hamburger and charge $50. No. Uh, you have to describe it as essence of cow mixed with... Right. The, uh, <laughs> yeah, with, with, with a hint of wheat. Um, yeah. The... How good, like, you know, when you people will say, ah, oh, you know, the, the technology's ruined this or it was better back then. One of the best things about going out for dinner now mm. is being able to just fucking Google shit and not feel like an idiot oh, asking gosh, yeah. the waiter. Oh, 100%. I just... Invariably, any time I look something up, it always turns out to be a form of cheese. <laughs> <laughs> it's just... <laughs> <laughs> or when you get the really niche ones that try and like they're on to us they're on yeah. to us mere humble folk who enter their establishment yeah and they create their own words yeah and they and you google it and you're like this means that and you're like well just given the context now that it's a verb here and it's right. a noun here it can't be that yeah so you're just like fingers crossed i'm gonna like it yeah i'll <laughs> give this a crack why don't you just call it beetroot dip mate just fucking call it beetroot dip i would have been all over it um well that's great yeah you know what if you have time and you can 
draw that through line for me because I'd be fascinated to know uh, how we get from you know mm. you know the sun god mythology. We were recording this uh, by chance on it's Superman's birthday. First, ah. first time uh, Action Comics came out eighty three years ago. Oh wow! So it's uh, so it's this very moment. Who is the modern sun god? You know, like in pop mm. culture, you know, he's comes from a different planet. You know, his uh, his father sent us to him to you know he was he oh, gets gosh. his powers from the sun. It's like it's all kind of wrapped into it, but it's it's modern day mythology, isn't it? Like oh, you, true, yeah. You could imagine in you know thousands of years time back then they used to believe in a, a deity called clark kent um <laughs> so oh, praise be yeah so i'm always fascinated at how you how you get to that place with all of these stories that just seem to pick up mm. tales as they as they grow yeah. and they get longer before i let you go so you know as a kid it was really easy to come across Greek mythology yep. and uh, Norse mythology. Mm. Why do you think that Egyptian mythology, which looks so rich and looks fascinating, why is it not in the popular culture zeitgeist as much as those religions? I think part of it was due to the kind of being in Europe, first of all, um, and when you kind of look at the Middle Ages onto the Renaissance and this kind of um, idolization of what civilization was in the days of the Romans and Latin and all of these things that the religion was based on. Right. Um, and, you know, the, the scholastic ideas of those from Greece and Rome that were very present to where... Um, a lot of the great things of the Renaissance were living. Yeah, and again, this is this is just my hypothetical thing. I'm sure there's many papers online, and obviously um, there could be many factors. But I feel like the the fact that uh, you know a lot of Renaissance um, thinking came from places around the Mediterranean in Europe um, lent itself to idolizing their own history and connecting that to what they were doing now you know we are descended from the romans the whole byzantine empire which kind of followed on from the roman empire the holy roman empire and all of those things come from the idea of the sanctity and the purity and the intellect of the romans and the intellect of the greeks and um and i think the egyptian culture was not translated as well because the language wasn't around right. the, the idea of hieroglyphs died off pretty quickly um they they changed over time because egyptian culture was longer um and so you know the same six thousand years the language kind of deviated for what we call old egyptian to middle egyptian um then you kind of have the ptolemaic macedonian greek influence where you get your cleopatras and your alexander the greats and yeah. that that language then starts to seep in for example the l sound didn't exist in egypt until that kind of um oh right that time so right. the l is represented by a lion in 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 cleopatra but cleopatra wouldn't have been a word that people 100 200 years before would have pronounced right because it would have been a right like Cleopatra, like right uh they just didn't have it and so you can kind of see those influences already and then hieroglyphs as a language just became too 
difficult for the average person to write and so you they ended up simplifying it and you're you're moving into kind of coptic and all of these that are becoming much more closer to what we you know consider arabic script today they're moving into lines which represent what the eagle was and right. the, the circle now is kind of like a half so and so over that jai you know that long period of time the language is simplified and with that the ability to translate the earlier language was lost so when they could probably go back and understand latin and read all the texts that they had on file for, on file um in the archaeology um, yeah. archives of rome at that time but they would be able to understand and relive it and that history i think was a bit stronger in europe for the europeans but you know trying to relive that through ancient egyptian culture didn't happen because they just physically couldn't understand right what was written um, and the idea of, of, of Egypt being the, the sacred home of democracy and the, you know military might and sa- uh, sanitation was just not as prevalent with the Europeans because you know Europeans love Europeans right <laughs> <laughs> it was sense. all done right in Europe and then the Romans went over of course and then they owned Egypt and then yeah. Egypt was a vassal state um, and, you know and so it was it lost its own sense of um, luster and, and yeah, individuality yeah, as yeah. well and so when you look back you're like oh it was just one of the places that Rome conquered right as opposed to a, a thriving like um, city and historic cultural epicenter of its own just in the same way as Mesopotamia yeah. was this very influential you know along with Egypt was like very one of the very first civilizations but yeah. again that is lost to the idea of that's the the nomad heathens out there yeah because Rome and, and Greece were this pure epitome of what culture was and you know the Renaissance really brought that home and it wasn't until the 18th century that we started to, uh, well, 18th 19th century that people started to really look back on Egypt um, and it's part of, you know, the, the colonization of Europe at that time with the rest of the world. And then, they, you know, they're discovering Egypt again and right. um, invading, finding things, being fascinated in the scholars, then taking it all away, moving it to the um, British Museum and museums yeah. in Paris and all of, you know, fighting over. And then at that point is when we get the translations and we start to understand the language because people are dedicated to it now. But that's... You know, a few hundred years after Rome has been re-glorified right. in Europe's history as the epitome of culture, and yeah, and so I think that's probably one of the reasons why it isn't as shiny. In the same with you know Norse mythology, yeah, um, and again, I think it's it's there's probably elements as well about how things were recorded in Rome and how they right. were kept, and I don't think uh, and someone messed me if I'm wrong, but the Norse kept as many documented tales on, on things that lasted the test of time. Right. You know, you have writings on walls and tablets that were all kind of secure in Rome and Greece and Egypt, but Norse uh, culture, from my understanding, you know, was much more basic in terms of how they kept records of what they were doing. They weren't as thorough and detailed. So you lose that ability to look back. And once you've lost that ability to look back, then it's a myth and a story about the foreigners from the north who came and took everything and we hate them and we got rid of them. Yay. Yeah. Um, It's it's, it's fascinating. There's all these uh, characters in kind of uh, Viking history where we kind of like we know, uh, you know, Ivar the Boneless existed, but we think maybe his mm. father Ragnar Lothbrok was 
like maybe he didn't exist maybe he's like four different people yeah. amalgamated like you know he gets uh, lost in that way it also is like imagine like i know this is this is like a jump but imagine you have this uh belief system and this religion and centuries later one of the most important people in that religion will be in the avengers <laughs> that's I, what they were hoping for you know but uh, it's, but it's a funny thing like it's it's not you mm, know it's yeah. it's a little bit like there's like in in a, once again in a parallel world where aj's having a little bit more issues maybe <laughs> maybe it's iron man captain america and super jesus super G- <laughs> oh, <laughs> do you know God. what i mean <laughs> exactly yeah it's 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 fascinating when you look at it from that aspect of why four? What did four represent to the early Marvel writers yeah. that other gods perhaps didn't? Was it was it you know this idea? Was it described as as a beautiful Aryan man and somehow that fit the kind of narrative or what the, the well, comics wanted? Well, and the original Thor's big and red yeah. and, and you know <laughs> and uh, you know I think they I think from what I remember. Jack Kirby, I think they wanted to do some like a god of some sort, and mm. I think maybe I don't know, maybe maybe Hercules was a bit gauche at that time. <laughs> well, <laughs> we've done Thor. all the Hercules, we've done it. Let's pick someone new. Yeah, um, and then yeah. suddenly he's, you know, uh, he looks more like Mads Mikkelsen with long mm. blonde hair, and you, <laughs> and then and then eventually he's played by an Australian, and there's all these kids that know about him, yeah. and there's all these yeah other religions that have. You know, that have all these fascinating stories that have fallen by the wayside. Yeah, and but now people know a lot more Norse mythology, right. arguably distorted by the American Hollywood industry. But nonetheless, people but, will know who Loki is and yeah. Odin and yeah. maybe Hell yeah. um, and the Valkyries and Valhalla and Asgard. And they have a sense of it. Like they yeah. at least at the very least have a sense of it and can talk about that yeah. part of it. And a lot of them will be in for a shock when they go and read the original stuff and go, <laughs> what the fuck is going on here? Oh, it's quite a morbid. That's a different story. Yeah, yeah, It's quite yeah. a morbid uh, belief system. Yeah. But uh, that's a tale for another day, I suppose. <laughs> I won't get started. Oh, yeah. It's fascinating. I read a lot of the stuff as a kid because of the comic. Like mm. I read the comic as a kid and then I went looking in libraries and then was quite shocked. Yeah. And then the way it all ended. Anyway, this is another conversation. <laughs> like, it's so funny. Uh, I so for everyone listening, I literally said, AJ, come over and we'll we'll chat for like twenty or thirty minutes, and uh, it'll be good to catch up and we'll we'll talk about this city and and uh, anyway. I'm not going to tell you how long we've been recording, <laughs> but we have nailed it. It's definitely like 25. Yeah, it's definitely 25, 25 minutes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, maybe 27. <laughs> um, what's coming up for you? Where, what, what can people find you doing? Uh, you, you're going to be in the live uh, Big Squid show, which will be fun. Yes, I'm super looking forward to that. Yeah. That'll be great. Um, I am doing a show on the 30th of April at the Factory Theatre as part of Sydney Comedy Festival called Up Late, um, which is for anyone who's into... Maybe maybe he's a bit like me. Maybe this is why I like doing lineup shows. Um, just the ADHD and the concentration. But <laughs> if you like a, a bit of a smorgasbord of different comedy styles, yeah, then that's what Up Late has kind of been cur- curatorially designed to do. Great, a little bit of some acts that usually won't get um, 
the you know the, the galas and all of that stuff yeah. because they're not traditional stand-up we so we've got sketch we've got clowning we've got musical comedy we've got stand-up that's slightly quirky and you know plays with the elements of bit more so it'll be a really nice way just to experience a few different elements of comedy and maybe find something you you didn't know you liked yeah um which i'm always a fan of i like sitting in those type of shows and being like i didn't know that i was into this until you just sat down and talked to me about it and now (laughs) i am yes um (laughs) it sounds great yeah, it'll be and, really exciting. Uh, what, so what time is that? That's 9.30 on Friday the 30th. Great, down at the factory. So people can uh, go to the Sydney Comedy yes. website and they'll be able to get tickets for it. Where can they find you on the socials? It's AJ Lamarck, L-A-M-A-R-Q-U-E. It's French and fancy, but pronounced English and common, just like me. <laughs> <laughs> I look fancier than I am. <laughs> Put that on a poster. That's great. All right. Thanks for coming over. It's always good to catch up with you. It's been a pleasure. Next, we have Rove chatting about the Oscars and the Falcon and Winter Soldier. Before I bring Rove in, a couple of things I'd like to talk to you about first. I didn't really get too deep into the Oscars with Rove because he's currently, you know, uh, in lockdown in Perth with his family at the time of recording and, you know, he's got stuff going on and I wanted to get to the chat about the TV series. So we kind of glossed over it a little bit, but I just wanted to share a few thoughts on that first. In a year where barely anyone went to the cinema, the decision to not show any clips from the winning categories was a massive mistake. Like, often the reason you want your movie to be nominated isn't because you're desperate to win a little trophy, but because it gives your film a new lease of life. By showing scenes from films that are nominated, you can sometimes catch a glimpse of a film you had never heard of or maybe knew very little about and have your interest peaked enough that you go to the cinema and give it a go. That goes triple for a movie that wins. All the years to cut clips, this was an absolutely massive misstep in my regard. Now, if you were cutting the clips to make it leaner, then I can understand the reasoning, but then you pad it out with all these mini speeches by the presenters about every nomination, and I'm interested in that stuff, and even I found it borderline pornographic at home how much of a wankfest 2000 it was. You can say something nice about everyone, but keep it tight, keep it short, and get the awards rolling. Also, some of the choices to me were bizarre, like playing a game of Name That Tune worked essentially because the talent there made it work. But this is an awards night. It's not a fundraiser for your kid's local netball team. That, to me, was just super bizarre. Not really giving anything context was bewildering. Like Frances McDormand, possibly one of the greatest actors, male or female, of her generation, was going for and ended up winning her third Oscar. And that is outstanding. And barely Anyone has ever achieved that. But where was the build-up to this moment? Do you know what I mean? Like, what a bizarre choice. And always contextualise things. That's what you should always be doing. If you've ever worked live or been to a live uh, performance, like a comedy show, a cabaret show, giving everything that comes up context allows everybody to enjoy it. And there was just no context going on here. And finally... This is just going to sound like I'm being a traditionalist, but just finish on best movie. 
Just finish on best movie. Because if you decide to end on best actor, you better have it rigged so your night ends on a high. Like, I'd rather have the drama of reading out the wrong winner like Warren Beatty did than finish on a moment where an actor who feels awkward in public at the best of times has to give out an award that everyone is hoping that the actor who died wins only for the really old actor who is in bed and not in attendance to win. Now, I don't know if you saw Anthony Hopkins' video he put out afterwards because it was lovely and it was classy the way he singled out Chadwick Boseman, but that should have happened on the night, not 12 hours later. That is just a weird way to end a show it was like oh best actor it's anthony hopkins he's not here anyway there's going to be an after party good night like what the fuck happened the oscars have slid into irrelevancy for me after i read how the campaign for shakespeare in love was the reason it won the oscar not because of merits like for a while there even when i kind of knew that some people were winning awards for their body of work rather than the actual work like I love Al Pacino. I've been a massive Al Pacino fan pretty much all my movie-going life. And it, to me, is a tragedy that he won for Scent of a Woman, which is, like, it's a fine performance, but it's a performance. I'm going for it. And, you know, maybe through bad luck or whatever but you know you feel like you should have won for like godfather part two which is a master class like a master class in acting maybe could have won for dog day afternoon but he goes up against uh, jack nicholson and one flew over the cuckoo's nest which is a signature performance for any man or woman in cinema history so you know so maybe there's a bit of bad luck here and there but godfather part two is probably the movie that he should have taken all the awards for and for him to get it for scent of a woman is a bit like oh well i'm glad he's won an oscar but it's a bit of a bummer it was for that and so i haven't always believed that they're completely transparent but when you find out that there are campaigns and then these campaigns are the reasons that people vote and then movies that should have won miss out and people who should have been nominated miss out and all of that kind of stuff it just kind of bums me out and I've pretty much viewed all award shows with skepticism ever since and I used to love the Oscars even even when I thought it was a bit you know like lower end entertainment but you know it was once a year you were still curious to see who was going to say something nice who was going to say something embarrassing what dress she was wearing how does he look in a suit oh geez those two are together you know this year I only realized it was on because it was trending when I turned on Twitter I turned it on and then I had the Oscars on in the background and then I kept finding myself watching it hoping for some magic and apart from a few moments of character from people it ended up having the ending that it probably deserved. And while they're finally starting to represent a wider range of people in the nominations and the wins, and that is definitely an absolute step in the right direction and exactly what we need, the fact remains cinema continues to slide into a morass of superhero films and CGI monsters smacking each other around. And I love a big blockbuster. I truly do. But I also love movies like Best Foreign Film, Another Round. And we aren't far from only being able to find those types of movies on streaming services. And that, for me, is depressing. The Oscars were a bummer. And that nicely segues me into The Falcon and Winter Soldier. 
I don't know if you remember, Rove and I were going to be doing this weekly and I was 100% underwhelmed by the first episode. Rove was a bit more on the fence with it than me, but I suggested we wait for episode two to see if there was more to dig into. And then fast forward four more weeks and it's like, oh, yeah, hey, do you want to talk about it now? I'm just going to take just another couple of minutes of your time to give you my pure thoughts on this series because... Rove had a more complimentary view than I did, and we recorded our chat yesterday, so I've had a little bit more time to marinate on his thoughts. We also had a a connection which was a little bit dodgy, and you won't hear that in the podcast. I've cleaned it up and made it better for you, so you'll be fine listening to it. But it just kind of meant that things were a little bit stop-start at points. So anyway... I didn't quite get to go into exactly how I felt. As always, if you loved this series or at least enjoyed it a lot, whatever I say, I promise you doesn't invalidate your experience and I am in no way trying to convince you otherwise. My thoughts on it are not to say that your thoughts are incorrect. I'm just going to share with you what it kind of meant to me. And as you know, I always go into something wanting to love it. But the more I think about this series, the more it just pisses me off because it takes really important topics and things that we should be discussing that we're trying to be more grown up and 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 broader thinking in society. And I feel like it just uses them as a checklist to tell a story that tells you it is important without really showing you why. Now, whether you like the TV series Watchmen or not, you cannot deny that the world building is impeccable. And this is the opposite in this TV series. And when your world building makes little sense, it leads to inconsistencies that take you out of the story. And when you are talking about important subjects like race and what it means to be an African-American in America, you need to land this plane as smoothly as possible. All the themes and the subjects they tackle in the series are incredibly important. And as I say to Rove, I love an African-American Captain America. I love it. But when you have a series that is talking about the everyday injustices a black man can face in modern times, and then you literally kill off another black character to give your new Captain America motivation for action, then that is leaning into a trope that diametrically discredits your call to arms. It doesn't matter that Walker does bad things out of it. The trope remains the instigating action, which comes from the same place, and that drives me insane." Like that's that's minutia. Do you know what I mean? Like that is just keeping an eye on the small things to make sure the broader things land properly. Also in Sam's speech at the end, while the bare bones of what the speech are about is something that I completely agree with, the way it is done and the length it goes to, I found gauche and I found it incredibly embarrassing. Also, I can't help but think they are commenting on a meta level when they have Sam talk about how in this speech, some people won't be happy that he's the new Cap in a way that it's like he's mollifying the fans of the Marvel Universe who don't want an African-American taking the place of Steve Rogers. If if you're going to make Cap a black man, make him a black man and stare down the naysayers. Stand by your convictions and don't apologise for being right in the face of criticism from people who are wrong. It That speech was just incredible and having people film it and supposedly everyone around the world watching it and then at the end everyone just goes yep great like I know it's a fantasy I know it's a superhero series I know it's a Marvel series but that doesn't mean they shouldn't aim higher in their 
execution. And I know that, look, I didn't really enjoy much about this series. And if if it wasn't anything but Marvel, which kind of insists that you watch everything so you can keep an eye on a movie that you're going to watch in three years' time, I probably would have checked out. And I'm really hoping that Loki gets us back on track. I know you can say that it was fun, that I'm overthinking it, that this is a Disney Plus kind of production so it's for the family and if it opens kids up to a discussion they had no idea about then that is essentially a win and I agree but imagine if what they made was actually good when you take on the worthy responsibility of telling a story with cultural significance you have to get it right in a tv series that opens with our Bucky and Sam bickering over the importance of the shield and the way Sam didn't take up the mantle then by the end Bucky is making quips with the guy who just used Steve's shield to chop off a terrorist's head that's bad storytelling and if you think that's inconsistent and maybe you think I'm overreacting with that how about something just as simple as Batroc deflecting cap shield with a flung chair it's cap shield it's made of vibranium doesn't that just go straight through that chair like ugh, awful i don't like pissing on things and i would say the intentions to this tv series were strong but any disappointment you hear in my voice is because it had all the ingredients to be something really special and for me Like, I would honestly put this right at the bottom of all of the Marvel Universe productions. And I'd probably put it below Thor The Dark World and stuff like that because the potential for this was much higher and I feel like they could have made something that had the cultural relevance and the impact that HBO's Watchmen had, but on the level of family entertainment that could have really resonated and, uh, you know, instead we got a six-hour buddy movie that just wasn't particularly funny or that thrilling. Boo! I'm sorry if you enjoyed it and I'm bumming you out, but I hope there were a couple of things in there that at least made you laugh and we're still friends. (laughs) We're still friends, right? Let's bring in Rove to chat about the Oscars and the TV series Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And if you think I've come in hot, well, Rove agrees with some of my criticisms, but, you know, he's much nicer than me. So (laughs) he'll take the edge off it, especially if I've lost you. Hang in there. Come back. Here's Rove. So the Oscars literally just finished a couple of minutes ago. And I have a question for you. When the in-memoriam section of the Logies happens, where do you think you come up? (laughs) Man, you want to be somewhere, (laughs) unlike today, where they're not picking up the pace a bit and scroll through super quick. There was a couple of people in there that was just... it (laughs) It was moving too quick. Kelly Preston... Um, who I would have thought would deserve a little bit more than than half a frame. Um, but, you know, it always comes down to, okay, so it was Sean Connery or Chadwick Boseman was going to be the big one. I guess Chadwick being nominated got him at the end there. But um, I tell you what, the one thing was also like for a list of our uh, 
full for the full list of people who died this year, log on to our website at the end. I was like, what? What? Yeah, we didn't have time for all of them. So for a full list of all the dead people, please uh, check out our Twitter feed. That was extraordinary. You're, you're a three-time Logie winner. You're coming in at the end. I'm coming in at the end, and I would expect that I get more than just my publicity headshot, that there's a few clips of my work as well. That's when you know you've made it, when they also put a few sound bites in there as well. Yeah, unless, uh, let me think, who else would have to die the same year as me? Um, unless something, you know, horrible happens in the next couple of years and I'm sort of in there the same year as Bert, that would probably be the only time I would I would play second fiddle. <laughs> I reckon uh, I'm somewhere between the gaffer boy <laughs> and the catering. And I yep. and and it's so quick the frame like it was like Diane Rigg in the in memoriam I got to R and she was gone. Oh my god! <laughs> Diane yeah. Rigg. You're looking at the face and then you're going, oh, that's a very young Diana Rigg. And then no, no, apparently not. I need to spend more time on uh, someone who was a publicist. Okay, that's good. To take nothing away from publicists, don't at me if you're a publicist. Killed your job anyway. Welcome to our world. Um, so uh, I, what I also loved is uh, I obviously have news alerts that go off on my phone, as many people do. And the big one for the end of the day, I, it was from, I think it was Variety listed it this way. Um it, uh, it said um, Anthony Hopkins beats Chadwick Boseman for uh, Best Actor at the Oscars. And you're like, he he beat like six other people, five other people. Don't you know? Don't make a go. Ah, oh, you know the the you know actor that we lost so tragically, the beloved actor that we lost so tragically uh, this year, long before he had done all that he could do in this business. Thanks, Ant- Anthony Hopkins. I hope you're happy with yourself for taking his uh, posthumous Oscar away. You're like, wait a minute. That's, it's, he beat lots of other people too. He beat Glenn from The Walking Dead. I don't see you mentioning that. Yeah, you beat Gary Oldman. You beat Gary Oldman. Yeah. It's like, oh, Anthony Hopkins beat Chadwick Boseman. That's disgraceful. You've already got one, Hopkins. Just give someone else a turn. Yeah, calm down, mate. But what about the the hot uh, decision to finish with not best movie, but best yes. actress and best actor, and then it's not Chadwick Boseman? Like, don't finish with best actor unless you know he's going to win because it's not Hopkins' fault, it's not anyone's fault, but it just meant that you had Joaquin Phoenix up, who I love him, but he's a strange dude and he doesn't really want to be there, and the person who died didn't win and the person who did win wasn't there because he was probably in bed because he's old. (laughs) Yeah. And so you go, what a wonderful uh, end to the year. Um, Yeah, I, I don't quite know how secret of the Oscars ballots are. I know they make it all. They love walking down David Blaine style, like this hasn't been tampered with. <laughs> you know, we put wrapped this thing in chains and thrown it over Niagara Falls. Like no one's, no one's been able to touch it. Um, but still there's this, uh, you'd have to think someone somewhere 
has an idea of who has won. But yeah, for it not to be for them not to end with with uh, best picture, you just kind of got to serve some right a bit. That it kind of you know, you you're taking that risk because you knew not everyone was not, was going to be there uh, this year of all years. So yeah, give it give it to the movie because there'll be somebody representing each of the films in that room. Right. I think it's because they don't want. Um, it's because mostly producers get up for films, and they don't seem to like that as much. If it's not George Clooney. You know who got up this year? Nobody. Nobody got up. Because <laughs> he wasn't there. No. He was in bed. <laughs> no, that's it. Was, was there a highlight? Was there anyone? I, I enjoyed Glenn Close. Glenn Close was great. Um, uh, I thought um, Lil Rel did a great job with the music quiz because when they said that they were going to do that, I thought this is not a good idea right now. This could be quite a car crash. But he's a very funny stand-up. Um, I think, you know, for anyone who sort of has seen him in, obviously, Get Out predominantly, but a, a, a other films since then too, he he is a very accomplished stand-up. Um, and and so he just felt so... He was so comfortable in that room and made that bit work immensely. So, yeah, I think Glenn Close shaking her booty and then saying... And then him saying this is the blackest Oscars ever, I think, was probably my highlight. <laughs> Yeah, it's my favourite as well. I'm also, as a long-time Nine Inch Nails fan, I will never get bored of watching Trent Reznor, the man who's saying, I want to fuck you like an animal, yeah. now winning two Oscars. Yes. And I, I was waiting for uh, him. I, I could see the guy, the, whoever was behind him looked like he was really wanting to jump in because Trent was going on these marvellous tangents um, that uh, I was I was watching this guy. That guy's going to jump in. He's wanting to jump in, and he didn't. So I kind of lost a bit on that one. I did enjoy uh, white people talking about jazz um, and how important it is when they accepted for soul. That's always a great thing. And um, look, I, I was I thought it quite lovely to see all the charity work that Tyler Perry's doing. Who would have thought the man behind Medea would be would have done so much? But there you go. You set up like, you know, geez, he's done all right. Set up these camps for people to be COVID safe and shooting in, in Atlanta. This is extraordinary. Well, he makes an extraordinary amount of money as well. Like he's one of those guys which by the mainstream is considered, you know, he's over there in his lane. But when you actually look at his lane, there's millions and millions and millions of people and they're all going to his movies and they think he's great. Yeah. Yeah, and and he's been very good at, uh, you know, he he obviously has done his very broad comedy stuff, but then he he has done some, he's championed other people's projects as well, and he himself has kind of gone into um, doing a lot more, you know, straight acting and things like that. But, uh, yeah, I I wasn't aware of, of how much he did behind the scenes, which I guess is kind of why it should be done. You don't do it to maybe get some kind of um, honorary Oscar out of it. Although if that's possible, um, you know, I do uh, donate to every time the scouts come knocking with their cookies. Um, do they still do that? Probably not. Um, so, you know, uh, you know, those giant koalas that used to see in the city with rattling their buckets, I used to put a dollar coin in there. So, so there you go was my honorary ask. And commiserations to our um, 
joint friend Sasha Baron Cohen for losing out in multiple categories. He embarrassed us all. Shameful. <sighs> like it felt like a really nice thing to be friends with him, and then the Oscars happen, and now it's just it's so, a bit awkward. Uh, I gotta, now I got to wash that off me. Yeah, that is embarrassing. Um, So the reason I was actually uh, getting you on the podcast was because I'm dying to talk to you about the finale of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which we have, we were going to do it week to week, and then we both just had a moment on the phone where it was a bit, "Ah, I don't know if there's really that much to unpack. And then it was like, let's see what happens in the second week. And then we haven't really talked about it since. And then the finale was on Friday. Yes. So I found that I think we've done the right thing. As you had mentioned on on the podcast too, it it had been described as a six-part movie so the idea that it was going to unravel like WandaVision quite clearly was not going to happen so I think it is something that going week to week we would have been not struggling but uh, it wasn't like it was leaving a lot of um, breadcrumbs that needed to be uncovered um, and, I, and I must admit, I, it took me till I was midway through episode three before I went, oh, yeah, I think I'm invested and happy to keep going. Um, this is one of those ones. It's, it's an interesting uh, experiment in, in that week-to-week release, like the, the, um, the Mandalorian, uh, WandaVision, these shows that was like it's Friday, it's time, for, it's time for the next episode. I've been talking and thinking about it all week. I can't wait to see what comes next. I didn't quite have that with this and there was a couple of times where it would be like, oh, I've missed, I've missed a week and now I'm watching two episodes back to back. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know whether – I'll put this to you. Do you think it helped or hindered to have WandaVision go first with this? Because obviously they were shot um, with the idea that Falcon and Winter Soldier was meant to go first, but obviously when you see it, you can understand why COVID didn't, it just was going to be an impossibility. Um, but if this had have gone first and then WandaVision, do you think maybe we would be thinking about it and talking about it in a, in a different way? Well, I think the main problem for me is that the whole production was uh considered a six-hour movie and regardless if it went first or second the issues that were embedded in it were were structure and I I have to say right up the top I love the idea of an African-American cap taking over in current times Uh, I think this whole series has lots of great ideas and it's only the way that they made it that was really disappointing. Uh, I think there was one of the things that Marvel insists upon us knowing is that continuity is king. And that Baron Zemo is not the guy from Civil War. No, no, this one's hilarious. This one's like, uh, he's, it's like give him his own low key style spin off season. Um, you know, yeah, there was a, it's, it's tough. And I think that this also happened with the um, Walker character as well, that you start to go, oh, he's, he's quite funny. You look at him dancing. He's enjoying his Turkish delight. There's the, 
the um, fight that was going on with the Dora Melange and he's just sitting off sipping his tea as this fight's going on in this hilarious cutaway and uh, yeah, it just made him a little too sympathetic, which which you should never do for someone like him. And then at the end, when you turn around and go, "No, we're still going to incarcerate you," that's that's exactly what his outcome should have been. But in between, there should have been you, you should have been thinking the whole time, "Don't take your eye off him, don't take your eye off him." And in the end, what you were left thinking was like, "He's almost stealing this show for the three episodes that he was in." That's not that's not what you want from your villain who, you know, was the was the reason why King Kachala's dead and um Cap and, and um Captain America came to blows. Yeah, Cap and Iron Man fell out over him. Yeah. The thing is is that I feel like they had a big whiteboard of all the things they wanted to do and they just didn't really nail it. So for starters, part of the problem is is that I don't think the leads have any chemistry and it's just a little bit of a dead end between both of them. So when they were trying to have that buddy rapport, it's A, you started them apart. So by the time you get them back together and hanging out, you're kind of looking and going, I don't really understand why these people are friends, you know, and then they kind of were giving them quips that weren't funny enough and they weren't kind of knowing enough and they were just it was all just a little bit blur and so thank goodness that you end up with Zemo having a little dance because it goes like oh this is good to watch and then they bring in Sharon Carter who they have just done a complete disservice to where you're sitting there like you keep waiting for a new character to come along so you can go oh this will be the power broker no one's coming along you go well fuck have you just done that to Sharon yep it's Sharon she's the power broker it was that it was that strange hiding in, in plain sight and to um to use a wrestling term, to see her turn heel into into the bad guy just didn't make sense to me. And and maybe the I mean the the actual power broker name is attributed to an actual character from the comic books that literally deals with handing out superpowers to anyone who can afford to buy them, um, which is in the comics how a US agent got his powers. Um, and we can get to that later. I'm very sad we didn't get his official backstory where to pay back the power broker, he became a professional wrestler, but that's okay. Um, but, yeah, the, the, it, as soon as Sharon appeared, uh, there was there was no one else on the table unless it was Zemo, which it didn't seem that that was going to happen. The fact that she, uh, like when they go to the shipping container and she's like, you guys go in, I'll stay here. And even when uh, Sam says, I think we're in the wrong shipping container, there's no one here. She's like, oh, that doesn't sound right. You're like, Are you not going to go check? You're acting very suspiciously. And... Yeah, it's like a Scooby-Doo episode when you're a kid and you'd sit there going, there's only two potential options for who the mystery monster's going to be because apart from our team of mystery solvers, there's only two other characters we've met. And one of them, as always, is the the, the grumpy old guy next door. It's a butler. Like, that's it. There were no other options unless it was going to be a big reveal of, of a someone else, which, look, it may still be with whoever she was talking to on the phone, but 
uh, I'm thinking that no, they've made it that it's her and 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 why that is, I'm not quite sure. No, I don't really understand either. The the whole thing was inconsistent, and ironically, I think they should have just made an hour forty movie and put it yeah. up, and I think that would have been better. Anthony Mackie and Sebastian Stan are great actors, and I think you know the, the they had some wonderful scenes separately to show what they can do. Um, but yeah, together, I don't think the characters have been have even with six hours to do it. I still don't feel that they they have that connection. And putting these ridiculous montages in there that didn't work for me of, you know, hey, look at us being matesy and working on the boat together uh, type of thing was like, no, you or, you know, throwing the, having shield practice, which incidentally we were having shield practice like we're throwing a Frisbee in the backyard, which is fine. And then the very next scene we have is a sequence where Sam's, learning how to throw and catch the shield. And and I'm thinking, didn't we just see him doing that? And wasn't he okay doing that? Um, and, <laughs> and then there he is walking past his nephews and, you know, giving him a little scruff on the head. And I'm thinking, stay out of the front yard, boys. You could lose a head. This thing is flying around. There's one shot where it's like ricochets off the tree and he misses it and it's heading straight for the house. And then we cut to something else. And I'm like, did it not destroy the house? The vibranium shield? Yeah, that thing's tough. (laughs) And there there was just this inconsistency all the way through the series, which was frustrating because once again, I still think all the ingredients were perfect for the show. But you know, Bucky's got a real thing about the shield and what it represents. And then later on, we see mm. Walker snap and literally chop a person's head off while he's being filmed by everybody. And then by the end, they're quipping together. And it's like, well, hang on, I don't quite understand what's going on here. Because he was willing to pull the van full of senators off off the scaffolding and then it's like, oh, and then, yeah, like you say, cut to Abraham Lincoln, really? And you're like, no, this is, that's not, that does not make sense at all. Hold on for one second. I'm just going to close the door. He wouldn't get into a, a car with him. And then suddenly he's patting him on the back and he's just chopped a guy's head off with Steve Shoe. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I, I look, I'll talk about the things I really liked about it. Yeah, there are, there are things I like too. Yeah, I, I really liked with with the shield this idea of the importance that we put in just objects and how we endow them with this uh, importance. There's you know, how many museums around the world that have just broken down old things in them that we say are important. The idea that that gold is more important than you know, iron, as far as what has value, is really dictated by human beings, nothing else. And this idea that the shield, you know, that Bucky was saying, if I was offered the shield, I never, I, I would never have given it up. And that the the fight that I really did enjoy between Sam and Bucky uh, and Walker uh, worked for me because it, it had intent and it was really them. The whole point was them wanting to literally take that shield out of his hands. And when they did, the fight was over. As opposed to later on when, when Sam's in the, um, his new suit yeah. 
and fighting with Batrock just felt like it was a bit of an irrelevant fight. It was just a fight for the sake of having a fight and seeing him do his thing. But yeah, this idea of what the shield means uh, and to see it with that blood was so impacting and quite clearly the shot is, is making that very clear um, and, and what that represents. Um, that, yeah, I think that that was something that just wasn't, that wasn't given, it wasn't given a consistency as, as the series rolled on and the fact that oh, now that he doesn't have the shield, it's okay. Um, it doesn't ring true for, for what this should have been. And, you know, there's, I, I love the idea of the Isaiah Bradley story, but I felt like that was kind of given a short shrift. By the end, it's like Anthony Mackey or Sam is saying, oh, finish your gardening. I've got something to show you. And then he goes and shows him the wing uh, where he's got a statue of himself. Like, there's just no way they put that up and don't tell him. Like, there's a ceremony. Like, it's the Captain America wing. Like, there is, yeah, he's invited uh... to it. <laughs> Sam obviously knows uh, some sculptors who can just you know, pull out something at short notice off the top of their head um, and put the plaque in there and, and make it all happen, and apparently quite quickly too. Um, I don't know whether that helps soften for me as well the fact that Isaiah, there was, you know, it seemed like every time there was a really great speech or scene or, or line of dialogue, like all the stuff that Isaiah was talking about that a black man will never be Captain America. Now I've spent my whole life defending this country and all it wants to do is just erase me. There's so much timely stuff in this, which was really impacting. And then in that case, for him to turn around and then say, oh, yeah, uh, good on you for being Captain America, I approve, just seemed like a real 180 that I wouldn't have seen him doing so easily. I just, yeah, I saw you on TV, well done. But the only thing I can think about is, yeah, well, in the time it would take to get a statue and put it all in there and get that approved, who does that, um, is, uh, says to me, okay, so maybe it wasn't just the next day, obviously, a bit of time's passed for Isaiah to be a bit more willing to hand this over. But even when Sam's flying around and... You know, like he, the whole series was based around episode one, him saying, I'm not worthy of this and I'm going to give it up. And then the government saying, well, we will take that shield and we will hand over it and the title of Captain America to this white guy who we deem is worthy because we've trained him. Really interesting. It's a really interesting insight. And then, you know, the scene coming out of Isaiah's house the first time and the cops coming up. And saying to Bucky, oh, is this guy bothering you? Like the race relation stuff was really, really interesting. And this idea that, A, would society accept a black Captain America? And B, would a black man want to take on what, that st- what those stars and stripes represent? Yeah. Was, I thought, a great p- a plot device, yeah. but was kind of thrown away in like the final episode and a half when they had all the time in the world to get us there and they were doing so well, but it felt like they didn't quite stick the landing when he's flying around at the end and some guy's filming him on the phone and one guy says, oh, that's uh, that's the Falcon, and the other guy says, no, that's Captain America. And you go, says who? Yeah. And he's flying around. How can, he's just got a new suit. It's the Falcon, guys. There was no... 
no official passing of the torch, no official acceptance that, you know, the, the, that, that would say, no, he has stood up for himself. And that speechifying with in front of all the senators where the media crew, and then he, he says his piece, he says his piece and he walks off and I'm looking at all the journalists going, no follow-up questions? Does anyone have, anyone want to get a little just uh, one-on-one with him? Just anyone want to just grab him for a soundbite afterwards? No, just let him go. Just let him and Bucky go and have a chat while all these senators, because all politicians love being caught out unawares with all the cameras on them and being told what they're doing wrong and just let him keep going. But just the fact that when he walked, when he's done, he's just walked off and just left them all there and not a single person from that press gallery has just gone, hey, Sam, what's with the new suit? Are you the new Captain America? Let's talk about this. He was just, he, he and Bucky were just left to walk off. I just went, what are you doing? Like, what is happening? Like, that speech, <laughs> this is why it's it's a little bit difficult to criticize because everything in the speech is sincere and true and it says a lot about the regular world but that speech with everyone filming it went for so long i got up from my lounge i went over to the kitchen i poured a little water made a little snack and while i was making the snack my first thought was he's still talking this speech is still going and then i sat down and the speech continued and it's just frustrating because there's a lot of really good ideas in this. And I just kind of feel like it was done poorly. By the way, why did Sam and Carly have a, like a really good connection that she could feel let down by him? Like, why, why did that yeah. happen? Like, I, I never yeah, saw but that. Things like the idea, like so much stuff that, um, you know, could be triggering for people, but at the same time seemed like really timely um, and, and relevant for a show that would have been pre-produced well over 12 months ago. But the idea of rebels storming the Capitol, which happened earlier this year in the States, all from people reading stuff online and through this app with the the flag smashers. Um, There was, you know, a few uh, undertones of Black Lives Matter as well, even the very ham-fisted, you know, uh, Battlestar's death didn't matter because he wasn't important or his life wasn't important, that type of thing, Um, for... Australians who are listening to this, the war atrocities that some of our soldiers have committed overseas um, had it coming to the fore and, um, you know, even, you know, Walker's line of, look, I only did what I was trained to do and what you told me to do was really, really telling. Um, and also, you know, recognising black soldiers. You know, we've just celebrated Australia Anzac Day, which is, of course, you know, our Veterans Day for those who are listening overseas, but that idea where we celebrate those who fought to defend our country in whatever war it may be. And obviously a big part of that in the last few years is acknowledging uh, black soldiers. Uh, they hadn't all been white and there's a lot of that in this as well. All of that, like there's a lot there and I will applaud them for doing it. And I completely understand that this is a Marvel production that's on Disney Plus and so there are a lot of kids who want to do this so you can't attack it in the same way that, say, um, The Watchmen did for HBO uh, or anything like that. I completely applaud them doing it, but I feel like it could have still the fact that I even did it and went there. I mean, geez, yeah, there's you know fake cap smashing someone's head with the shield. 
you're not pulling punches. So just the fact it felt like it, they were raising some really good points and some really good issues, but then didn't quite resolve them. I think fully was uh, was a bit disappointing, unfortunately. Yeah, I was frustrated because I actually was really into the John Walker story. Uh, I thought uh, Wyatt Russell was pitch perfect for it. But even but even in the end, you know, he has the moment with Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who, by the way, feels like she's in a completely different show. I love her, and I loved every moment she was in the show, but I wondered what show she was in. And then at the end, he's, like, he's kind of, turned a little bit when he's like, see you, Val. She's don't call me that. And he's like, oh, yeah, sorry. And it's like, it was only two episodes ago you were carving someone's head in. What I would have done is I would have started with Bucky and Sam working together. And obviously they've been doing lots of missions together. So you can tell that they've got that partnership and then you can have that banter from the start and you can have Bucky say, hey, how are you going with the shield? And Sam says, you know, it's it's hard. Like it's a really hard thing because I don't have superpowers. So I'm having to learn how to do this in a different way to Steve. And so you can have that kind of montage early. Then you have the government come in and say, that's government property, we're taking it, and then you bring in US agent and, and well, you know, the new cap and see their adventures and you have them going alongside each other. I think that just would have worked better because then you would have more of an understanding of the relationship and then you could – and I would have made the new cap as villainous. I just would have made him exactly what he's meant to be, which is the aggressive and unsympathetic uh, side of of American politics and delve into that a little bit more. So he's still doing technically good things, but he's doing it in a way that is not thinking about the broader context of the world. And I just think I, I wouldn't have broken Baron Zemo out. I would have had Baron Zemo break out. Let him break out. You know, he's well, smart. I'm still not sure. I'm still not sure how he did get out. You know, like who put who put the thing in the book? Was it Bucky or is it not Bucky? His line of I only did what I did because of what you trained me to do, you built me, I think was very apt. And the fact that the government was so quick to strip him of that, it was so, again, just I get the fact that if he's going to snap, then let him snap. And, and the shield bit, it's incredibly over the top. But okay, if he's going to be as blatant as that in in a blind fury, and he's full of super serum, um, smashing a guy's head till he you know is completely dead in public, then fine. And the rage that he takes after being jettisoned by those who make those decisions, fine. But then he has to stay that way. To to, to try and redeem him at the end, I don't see why we why we were meant to be doing that. Yeah, I would have let him keep the shield right up until that final battle and then have something where Sam kind of, you know, saves a whole lot of people, saves uh, this version of Captain America, does something else, and then have him sort of acknowledge, hey, I think you should take this, and actually have him symbolically hand the shield over. Even the, I know that's still a little bit hackneyed, but the symbolism of the right-wing or conservative, uh, aggressive side of American politics acknowledging that this African-American man is the Captain America and handing it over is just a little bit more subtle 
and a little bit more powerful in in the process. But man, that mm. speech like it it hurt my ears and it hurt my eyes, and it it felt like you know the fox mutant movies always felt like they just the majority of the movies blew their load too quickly. Oh, you've just met Jean Grey. She's the Dark Phoenix. Oh, we've just yeah. rebooted it. She's Dark Phoenix again. And it's like, no, the Dark Phoenix story worked because Jean Grey had been around for decades. And so it meant something when things went pear-shaped. And this this felt like, like, why did he have to stop being Captain America by the end of it? Do you know what I mean? Like, I like I understand that you want Sam to be the Captain America, but it just everything just moved along a little bit too quickly. It was like they were trying to tick boxes as they went along, and it's a shame because, as I said, th- there were things that I liked about it, but I just feel like it was a missed opportunity, especially off the back of WandaVision, which, you know, WandaVision wasn't perfect, but as a TV series, week to week to week, was episodic. It was its own thing. It still told a grander story. And it feel like it took a real roll of the dice, whereas this could have just been an early 90s buddy action movie. And I wonder if that's what it should have been. How do you think it would have gone as a film if this was, where are we, phase four? If this was one of the ones that is kicking kicking off this this next phase for Marvel, do you think it would have worked better if it, it if it had been you know even for what it is like it could have been a two and a half hour movie as most of them are now or two hours do you think it could have it would have worked better under the under those circumstances or would some of these things that already feel pretty rushed like Isaiah's acceptance suddenly of Sam being cap uh, none of that changes that, that that was something that obviously was only going to be what it was going to be because we had to get more of the big cook up at the end in there. But do yeah, do you think it would have served it better if it it have had have just been a film and much shorter? Or would they not have been able to get all the subtlety in? Well I think you also accept, oh well it's a two hour movie. You can only do so much. But when you've got six hours like the fact that one of the few things that I really gave a shit about was Bucky telling that guy that I killed your son and he goes and he starts telling him and then the next thing we see is him walking out and then the next thing is him being a sex pest looking through the window at the girl that he walked out on the date and he's kind of like, like what is happening here? Like that was the thing that we should have been well, building yeah, towards. I was in two minds as to whether, yeah, I think that that type of thing is, <laughs> I get well, it's open to interpretation, but... I feel like we we should be shown that either he was forgiven. Um, I think the inference is the old man forgave him rather than just yelled and said, get out. And the idea that he's looking looking at him again with the waitress from outside on the street um, suggests to me that, Oh well, he's moving on now. He's that—that that was his way of saying goodbye, almost. He's, because now the two of them have each other, so he doesn't have to be there for you know to pick up the tab for lunch every Wednesday. Um, but it still felt I needed to see that though. I needed to see Isaiah not just say, "Oh, you know what? I saw you on the TV last night. You're okay, kid." I'd need him to say to me, to Sam. 
I struggled with this. I saw you speak, make your little speech and well done. And after everything I said, you've still decided to do this. But, and at first I, did, I, I felt this way, but now I feel that way. And, and let me explain how I feel to you. And I know we kind of got that in his first scene, but it just feel, felt like he was like, no, nah, that's cool, whatever. You know what? I, I accept it now. Um, as, as we all do, everyone, everyone accepts it. It's all fine. Um, but, uh, yeah, and a, a similar thing with Bucky's is like that was his whole thing. That was the whole, his whole character was set up with this idea of I, I need to, I, I'm never going to be able to tell this secret. And it's a it's such a powerful thing, yeah. in the same way that when you see him being um, uh, put through his initial initial decommissioning in Wakanda, him just sobbing in front of that fire, I found really impacting, very powerful. That was his best acting in the whole series. Yeah. And and Sebastian, yeah, Sebastian Stan can bring it, and that proved that. But man, I would have liked to have seen a bit more of that that scene with the old man. Man, like he looks in through the window, and the girl that he did the runner on just looks over and kind of smiles at him. Like he's that guy's going in and saying, "Hey, remember that Bucky guy that we liked? You know, he killed my son." And then she's like looking out the window. Oh, it was you. Thanks for telling him. Look after yourself. How's your arm? Like anyway, and then and also. I, I, you know, what was going on with Carly? Like that also seemed like an actor so, in a completely now where different... Do you, yeah, where do you sit with her and the flag smashes? I don't know where we're meant to sit with them and maybe that's the problem, but uh, do you, did you in any way empathise with her at all and, and do you think she got what she deserved or not? I just don't think they did the world building enough. You know, like the idea of suddenly there's all these refugees five years later when the blip is reversed is such a fascinating idea, such a brilliant idea. And I just think, once again, it was on the whiteboard, but nobody, okay, what's it do to the economy? What does it do to people who have moved on and have, you know got new lives and then suddenly (laughs) these people are back like there's all these what happened to people who have moved into that house and now the original owners are back like there's all this kind of interesting stuff they could do that was a really good point you know when sam was speechifying at the end and the senator says well what are we meant to do people have been gone for five years and they come back to find that someone else is living in their house what are we meant to do and sam's response is well sometimes you have to make hard decisions and you just got to stand by it. Well, that's kind of what they've done. They've just made a decision that maybe he doesn't agree with. But a lot of his points were just like, hey, guys, just do better and fix this. And I hadn't sort of seen that these guys were in any way corrupt or making the wrong decisions. I mean, you know, Carly's blowing up uh, a refugee camp or embassy. I'm still not 100% sure what it was. Um, to say, oh, this is the only way that this is the only message that they understand is me killing people. Um, so at no point did I see that the politicians were actually being the bad guys, except that you go, well, they're not allowing refugees into the, the country or whatever. But, but at, the, at that time, the refugees were seen to be these militant uh, despots. And sure, it was, there was a line about one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. And I get all of that, except you didn't make it clear to me 
which side Carly was on because there was a lot of shades of grey to her that had me thinking when I mean, she's calling Sam's sister, you're like, okay, no, so she does want to do the right thing. And when, like, her conversation with Sam was fantastic. And I think between the two of them made a lot of sense when he was trying to negotiate with her. Um, and yet Bucky with his super soldier serum and, and vibranium arm cannot stop um, John Walker from getting in, but that's fine. That's okay. Um, it, it just looked away for a second, 10 minutes. Um, apparently we can't wait that long. And also uh, you've got 10 minutes. Is that going to be enough time to talk someone in? But that's all right. Can you, not, can you give me a little bit longer? Because there may be a funeral that they're getting through and it might take me a bit of time. But um that scene then at the end, it was like, we're going to kill her off and we need you as an audience to be okay with the fact we're going to kill her off. So she needs to turn and break bad and we need to see her become the villain here um, by suddenly saying, well, that's it, I'm just going to blow everybody up, um, which didn't make sense to me other than the fact that we we weren't meant to mourn her death, I guess, because I didn't. I was kind of like, yeah, all her followers are like, uh, I don't know, when she's like one world, one people, and they're not responding. So I, and I wasn't really sure even for her motivation why why she had suddenly made that that change. Um, it just wasn't fully fully realised. So I'm not I'm not sure where I sat with her and and the rest of her her crew, unfortunately. So even when the rest of the crew who had who had said, "Well, we're not behind you anymore," are in the van, and Zemo's equivalent of Alfred blows them up. Should, am I meant and am I am I meant to be am I am I meant to be sad about that or not? By the way, wouldn't we all love to have someone that you could say, hey, look, you know, if the food's off, just give it to this guy that I don't like on my private jet. That's the way to live. That might come in handy. The uh, Yeah, it was just missed opportunity. I think you you look at something like Black Panther, which was a two-and-a-half-hour movie. You understand Killmonger. You understand his motivation. You, you know, you like you're quite clearly on T'Challa's side, but, you know, even he comes around at the end and sort of sees the point that Killmonger is trying to make. And they did that in two and a half hours and I had six hours of this and I got to the end and it's like, ah, well, I feel like you missed a golden opportunity to just make something really great. And it just, and to hear that these showrunners are going to make the next Captain America movie is like, uh, okay, well. But, like, again, with the constraints of a movie, maybe they can. I think perhaps part of the problem here is we've got six hours to fill. We kind of need to keep it twisting and turning. And, you know, suddenly this idea that, you know, even John Walker's back and you think he's, you know, he's going to be the big villain, but then even he has this moment of redemption, I feel is just to keep the audience guessing because we've got six hours instead of two to, to get all this done in. Um, so they have to try to keep you wondering what's going to happen next instead of just telling the story the way they would want to tell it. Um, look, I think uh, also the idea that Madripoor has now been mentioned is obviously, you know, for people who don't know, there's X-Men and Wolverine connections to that. So we've placed this now into the MCU as interesting. Um, we see um, Eli, Isaiah's, uh, I think what they're saying is nephew, I think it was, um, who is who is part of the Young Avengers, the Patriot. 
Um, so whether we're now being introduced, I could see that as a, a, TV, a great Disney Plus series, The Young Avengers, would be fantastic. So, um, and, and the Val character um, obviously has fantastic four connections as well that Julia Louis-Dreyfus was playing. So it's, again, once again, setting off all these other wheels in motion that have got, had me going, oh, that's, that's interesting. But um, also one other question for you. The big oh no, keep going. You go. We'll come back. Uh, to my I, I think Marvel's at their. I think when Marvel's not at their best, their movies accidentally become two-hour trailers for the after-credit scene, and this felt a little bit like this accidentally became something that's a placeholder to set up a whole lot of other things they want to make. Whereas WandaVision felt like a complete story, and it's going to be something else. Mm, and, and you're excited to see those characters again, like the idea of Wanda at, at full strength now. I think we said it at the time. She can now carry her own film, which would be extraordinary. Um, but the idea of especially coming from the Captain America films, which are some of the strongest, I think, that the, the Marvel universe has created thus far, uh, whether I don't, I don't know that this series necessarily had me saying oh well i want to leap into the next what is now captain america and the winter soldier um which is the other thing so you know uh, my wife who was in and out of watching it with me is often asking me who's this person do we know who this person is and is just sort of getting a brief and was interested in in some of the elements we talked about you know like the john walker character and and the scars of war and and you know means to an end and the the meaningfulness of representing the stars and stripes which have been you know a lot of people use to hide their racism under patriotism is that something you would want to take on as a, as an African-American person? A lot of that stuff she was kind of into, but every now and again, she would be asking a question. So then when we get the reveal of, okay, the Falcon is now Captain America and she's looking at, at Bucky and she said, so what's this guy's superhero name? And I was looking and went, well, technically he's the winter soldier. He gets called the white wolf by the people of Wakanda, but, uh, and his name's James, but everyone just kind of calls him Bucky. But I guess technically, if the title of the show is anything to go by, it's the Winter Soldier. But when you think about it, that was like the name he went by when he was this brainwashed assassin. So it's almost like, you know, the worst part of your life is what you shall forever be known as. It's like, you know, I don't want to be known as the gig I had in 1995 in the Gold Coast or something like, you know, you don't want that name for the rest of your life, just hanging above your head. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it'd be nice to go, uh, can can he get a new name? Can Bucky get a new name? That, I hadn't thought about that. But you go, yeah, that'd be nice. It'd be nice for him to get a new moniker. And what was the question you were going to ask? So um, all the calls that Sam made when we get that big ring around of, you know, hey, can you help us out? And everyone's like, oh, yeah, anything for your family um, was just we need a new motor for the boat and a, and, and a barbecue. We're having a big barbecue party. Because right. the whole start of this was his sister is uh, – the family business is not working. She can't look after the boat. 
Uh, she's going to have to sell it all. And he's saying, no, it means so much. It's our last connection to our parents. You, you can't do that. You can't do that. And yet when Bucky's bringing down, hey, we've got a whole new suit for you that I'm still not 100% sure who, who paid for that. Maybe it's crowdfunding. You had Patreon side or something. But with that, can we, not, can we also get a, like just a new boat motor, a motor for the boat, just a new engine for the boat with this multi-million dollar suit would be great. I would really appreciate that. And then, yeah, at the, the end it was just like, well, I haven't sort of seen that he's fa- – I don't feel that his family's okay. It's great that we're all drinking beers and having a barbecue and Bucky's there and we're all high-fiving and arms around each other and singing and dancing. But it's like, does ha- – uh, are they financially sound now? Like, did we fix the boat? Is the boat fixed or or not? And h- how is anything that kicked off the whole e- of episode one with just going, this is what's important as well? I didn't quite get that. Yeah, it was all smiles, but if, but I was sitting there going, I don't I don't know that it is. Is it all smiles? Is everything okay? Is everyone accepting of him? wearing the red, white, and blue all over his body now, that's all fine too. Again, it was all just a happy montage at the end says, no, trust us, everything's okay, and I'm not 100% sure I believed that. How about you? Yeah, no, it was such a, once again, it was like, okay, we're done. Okay, that happened, that happened, that happened, that happened, and there's a movie coming. Of course it's a happy ending. It wouldn't be a happy ending if we weren't (laughs) clinking beers with with some literal shrimp on the barbie. Come on, it's all fine. Everything's fine. It was uh, a frustrating uh, watch, but uh, but I'll leave you with this question: What do you reckon's going on with Loki? Are you enjoying that trailer? Oh my god, that trailer! That show, I think, is going to be bananas. And Tom Hiddleston. Uh, can bring brings so much to that role, uh, and I am thoroughly looking forward to it. Just making or probably no sense, really, um, or just being—it's going to be outrageous. It's just going to be balls to the wall. Anything is possible. It's you know, reality, time bending craziness. And I'm thoroughly looking forward to it. Much like WandaVision, it might not make a lot of sense a lot of the time and we might feel like we're playing catch-up. But, I mean, that character is so lovable. As, as a villain, is a wonderful character and a lot of fun. And Owen Wilson being in there as well, I think they're going to play off each other really, really nicely. And I'm thoroughly looking forward to it. Bring on what June? We're not that far away. Yeah, the there was a, a a touch of Brazil about you know you've got to sign these uh, forms of everything you've ever said, and he's like that's absurd. And then next minute, ding, and now you have to sign this one. That was funny. I feel like it. Um, it looks like it kind of has the potential for uh, like if the master had his own spin off from Doctor Who, and it's like oh well, this is good. Uh, yeah, almost like, um, uh, yes, the villain off, off Doctor Who, uh, for those who don't know, has much like the lead character been played by under many guises by many different actors. And the Michelle Gomez version, the female one who was known as, as Missy, it's almost like she gets her own series here. 
And that is thoroughly enjoyable. I would devour that. And I think that's what's going to happen here. And to the point where maybe Loki gets to play straight man a little bit. And I think it'll, I think it'll be marvellous. I'm really, really looking forward to it. Yeah, the trailer was, uh, you know, completely in our wheelhouse, I think. And the, I, I, I yes. want them to take, if you're going to do a TV series, don't try and make a six-hour movie. Give me a TV series and make it episodic and tell a greater story yeah. and take or big swings. Or make a TV movie. But I, I realise a movie's not going to get you six weeks of eyeballs um, and possible subscriptions. So I, I can see why. And look... Overall, I want to say I give it a passing grade. I, I did enjoy it, and um, it might seem like nitpicking, but unfortunately you pull up some of these threads and it really starts to fall apart quite quickly. But I appreciated the ambition of what they were trying to do um, and those lighthearted moments. There were some, there were some really fun ones. Um, it just lacked a bit of cohesiveness and cons- consistency. But, uh, but overall, yeah, I... I, I would say I enjoyed it for sure, and it gets a pass, but it, it um, it's not perhaps something I will go back and, and revisit like I will with WandaVision. No, it is uh, any criticism that is being discussed only comes from a place of frustration because it feels like it could have been something really special and it ended up being fine. Fine. Hey, a quick thing as well. I just realised, I don't know whether this is a squid bit or not, but um, here we are talking about Marvel on the same podcast that you're doing Leftovers recaps, which I'm thoroughly enjoying. And I only just realised or found out probably that Justin Thoreau wrote Iron Man 2. I I, I was completely unaware of that. Yeah, he's got some uh, really big writing credentials, like Tropic Thunder. Uh, is it I've Zoolander? I've seen them in those tracksuit pants. Oh yeah, like that is. So I, so it's always been one of those things that's made me laugh a lot. And I've recently seen a thing where Damon Lindelof has said that he feels really bad because he's, you know, you wouldn't do that to a woman. Well, sure, but you know, I think equal. I think we're you, and we're all thinking it. We're all thinking it. But the second to last episode, like, you get a lot more about his appendage. So, Oof. Yes, <laughs> yes, it, yes, there is a callback. There is yeah. an absolute callback, as there yeah. should be. That was, that's what makes it fine, because it's childish and it makes me laugh. And, uh, look, speaking of, of length, um, one other thing I need to commend you and Ben Elwood on is somehow managing to talk about two Justice League films that in total go well over seven hours um, and you did it in, what, just over two. I thought that was extraordinary and to the point where I went, oh, my God, I think I might actually do what you did and watch them both back to back. So I hate you and love you both at the same time. Oh, that is the exact right response. (laughs) It is a fascinating watch. Like, it's, and I agree completely with Ben, it's the way to watch it. You, you watch the Joss Whedon version and then you come in hot and watch the Zack Snyder version. And, uh, you know, it felt like probably our greatest achievement of bringing it in at the two-hour mark. <laughs> well, we'll book a cinema and, and get some um, big squid fans in and do a proper session where everyone can just take the piss out of it, I think, is the way to go. Yeah, and we'll and we'll have microphones. We'll talk over the top of, of all seven hours. Absolutely, <laughs> that's what's going to happen. Uh, I'd be sure. totally up for that.
Uh, Rove, thank you very much for coming on the show. We'll speak to you soon. A pleasure. Uh, an absolute pleasure. Chat soon. Thank you to Rove and AJ for being my guests on today's show. Remember, they're two of the guests for our live Big Squid show this Sunday, 5pm at Giant Dwarf. That is May 2nd, depending on when you're listening to this, in case you think it's this Sunday and you're listening to this three months down the track. (laughs) Um, Head to giantdwarf.com.au to grab your tickets so you can see Tom Gleeson, Alice Fraser, Richard Feidler, Angela Fauvier, Alexi Toliopoulos, Ben Irwood, and my guests in our human flesh. Of course, that includes Rove and AJ. If you'd like to discuss anything on this podcast, and I'm certain there'll be some thoughts on Falcon and the Winter Soldier, why don't you join our Facebook page, either the open one or the private one, to share your thoughts, not just with me, but all the cool people over there. Really nice people, all discussing stuff in a grown-up way. Remember, this is a private page, and it's private because it's a place where you can talk freely about your opinions. No trolling. Don't be an arsehole. Everyone's take is valid, and we want to hear why. I really appreciate it when someone tells me something about maybe like the Falcon and the Winter Soldier that you liked, and then I can look at it and go, oh, yeah, you know what? I like that part as well. So... We want to hear from you and just come over and have a grown-up chat about (laughs) superheroes. (laughs) Uh, If you have the time, please leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts as well. It does wonders for the podcast for some uh, nice reviews up there. I thought we'd end on a quote from actress Glenn Close, who has been nominated eight times at the Oscars and never won. And that is devastating like I almost feel like it's better not to be nominated do you think no it's still good to be nominated but oh and she's a great actor and she loses all the time and she shows nothing but grace and humility so (laughs) with this little gesture I'd like to celebrate the great actress that she is um here's a quote which comes from her answering a question about the advice that you'd give to your younger self. Glenn Close said, I tell myself to listen to my heart. Listen to that little voice that says, hmm, I don't think so. Because when you override that, you basically override who you are. Great quote. I reckon that's one that we can all live by. Until then. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.